The United Auto Workers have only walked out on one automaker at a time. This time around, though, the union is taking a more aggressive approach, striking against all three, but in a limited way. It's now threatening to expand the strike unless there's major progress in contract talks by Friday. Today is Tuesday, September 19th, and this is All Things Considered. Good afternoon, I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, climate change and the war in Ukraine dominate the first day of speeches at the annual UN General Assembly. The UN Secretary General warns the world is unhinged. Also, the nominations are in for this year's Latin Grammys, but are the regional Mexican musicians getting their due? They represent themes and issues that impact everyday people in Latin America that the Academy maybe isn't quite ready to see promoted. These stories and Wall Street numbers, along with the forecast, are coming up. It's 401. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. President Biden is urging other world leaders attending the U.N. General Assembly this week in New York to stand united against Russian aggression in Ukraine. With more on President Biden's speech earlier today, here's NPR's Tamara Keith. President Biden said Russia is counting on the world to grow weary. But he asked if nations abandon the core principles of the U.N. charter to appease an aggressor like Russia, can any member nation feel protected? If you allow Ukraine to be carved up, is the independence of any nation secure? I'd respectfully suggest the answer is no. The White House is asking Congress for another $24 billion in military and economic support for Ukraine. But some Republicans are balking. Tamara Keith, NPR News, New York. A military airfield in Virginia plays host to an emotional homecoming. Several Americans who spent years as Iran's prisoners were reunited with loved ones at Fort Belvoir early this morning. Families and friends raced to them and embraced them. National Security Council spokesman John Kirby says the focus now is on the health of each former prisoner. The initial reports we have are relatively good health, but we want to make sure that they get all the care that they need and they'll, they'll have access to that care for as long as they need it. The five Americans, two of whom are opting to keep their identities private, were released as part of a prisoner exchange with Iran. The U.S. also agreed to release $6 billion in Iranian funds on the condition the money be used only for humanitarian reasons. Some Republican critics argue the U.S.-Iran deal could incentivize U.S. adversaries to kidnap more Americans. India is accusing Canada of interfering in its internal affairs and has expelled a top Canadian diplomat. The decision was announced one day after Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau said his country was investigating allegations that India played a role in the death of Sikh independence advocate Hardeep Singh Nijjar, who was killed in Canada in June. The U.S. House Oversight Committee will hold its first impeachment hearing for President Joe Biden next Thursday. NPR's Deirdre Walsh reports on the focus on President's family. Oversight Chairman James Comer will chair the first public impeachment hearing on September 28th. The session will examine constitutional and legal questions around the GOP-led panel's allegations that the president engaged in, quote, corruption and abuse of public office, according to a committee spokesperson. Comer is expected to subpoena personal and bank records from Hunter Biden, the president's son, and James Biden, the president's brother, as soon as this week. White House spokesman Ian Sam says the hearing is a way for House Republicans to distract from their own, quote, chaotic inability to govern. It will play out two days before Congress needs to pass a funding bill to avoid a government shutdown. Deirdre Walsh, NPR News, the Capitol. This is NPR.
This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good afternoon. I'm Lisa Mullins. The results are in from last year's MCAS, Massachusetts Standardized Tests. And as WBUR's Max Larkin reports, they paint a picture of an uneven academic recovery that's still in progress. Tenth graders in Boston and Springfield already topped their pre-pandemic passing rates on the MCAS English test. At the same time, passing rates in 101 other public and charter high schools remain well below their 2019 levels. Amid those extremes, the story statewide is more modest, according to Education Commissioner Jeff Riley. The achievement slide caused by the pandemic appears to have halted and recovery is fully underway. All grades 3 to 8 either maintained or increased the percentage of students meeting or exceeding expectations from 2022. Riley has expressed hope that pandemic learning losses might be recovered by 2026. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Max Larkin. Service on the Fitchburg commuter rail line is back up today, just in time for the afternoon commute. Last week's flooding severely damaged tracks near Leominster Station and forced the line to shut down until today. The MBTA says workers had to install a storm drainage system and rebuild the embankment along the tracks. Elected leaders are celebrating the installation of an electric vehicle charger at an affordable housing development in Dorchester. The pilot project launched today uses technology to send electric power from the building to a vehicle and vice versa. Gail Lattimore is head of the Codman Square Neighborhood Development Corporation, which operates the housing development. She says the technology will help lower heating and cooling costs for residents. The hope is that uh, we can show that this bi-directional charger can help reduce the costs of energy to the property, can help feed energy into the grid. Lattimore says programs like this help reduce barriers to environmentally friendly technology for tenants in affordable housing. Nice-looking day today. Should lead us to a clear night tonight. Breezy, a little bit cooler tonight. Temperatures in the upper 50s. Tomorrow should be a repeat of today. Sunny skies, some fair-weather clouds around. Highs about 74 degrees. 72 degrees now in Boston at 407. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, supporting creative people and effective institutions committed to building a more just, verdant, and peaceful world. More information is at macfound.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. The tiny Italian resort island of Lampedusa sits in the Mediterranean, about 120 miles off the coast of Tunisia. That puts it closer to North Africa than to Italy, so close that it's becoming a landing place for migrants who are desperate to enter Europe. Last week, more than 10,000 migrants made the incredibly dangerous journey to Lampedusa, creating yet another migration crisis for which Italy and more broadly Europe are not prepared. NPR's Ruth Sherlock is on the island tonight and joins us now in a note that we'll be describing the tragic circumstances that some of these migrants face. Ruth, you managed to get rare access to this port where many migrants arrive on illegal smugglers' boats. Tell us what you've been seeing. Well, you know, there was this scene of dozens of dilapidated boats. Some of them were actually half sunken in the water, and there was this debris of discarded life jackets and clothes and plastic water bottles. And this is 
the remnants of the scene from last week when thousands of migrants arrived here. And people who worked at the port told me these terrible stories of some of the things that these migrants had been through, um, being sometimes at sea for days. You know, they described one woman who gave birth while at sea and the baby had died. Um, and she'd clutched him and her, the baby in her arms for two days without cutting the umbilical cord. Others talked about a three-year-old arrived, you know, traveling alone and it's presumed his parents died. So it just gives you an idea of how difficult and dangerous these journeys are at sea. Um, but once they arrive, it's not clear that everybody who arrives will be given asylum. Some may be returned to their home countries. The Italian Prime Minister Giorgia Maloney and the president of the EU Commission, Ursula von der Leyen, came to Lampedusa after this latest influx. And at one point, their convoy was stopped by residents who wanted to see them do more to deal with the migrant crisis. What's the atmosphere like there? You know, it's surprising there isn't this hostility that you might expect from residents who are seeing so many arrivals. In fact, last week, some residents came out and gave food and offered shelter. But there is a fear that if this continues, if migrants keep coming in these numbers, Lampedusa could be subsumed by the immigration problem. And that is something that the islanders really worry about. In fact, they blocked a shipment of tents last week because they don't want a permanent encampment here. I spoke with Giacomo Svedlazzo. He's a singer and artist who was the person who cornered Prime Minister Maloney when she came. He says, you know, Lampedusa cannot bear the weight of the world. And he's calling for more durable solutions, but the big problem is what those might be. What are some of the options that are being considered? Well, you know, Maloney's issued this crackdown. They're talking about um, more detention centres in Italy and returning more migrants who don't qualify for asylum. Uh, and she wants a naval blockade. That's something the EU hasn't sanctioned. They instead talk about a 10-point plan that includes stepping up border security and, you know, this kind of controversial funding of the authoritarian president of Tunisia to try to limit migration that's coming from there. Um, the EU says it stands alongside Italy, but the problem is lots of European countries in practice are not really very willing to, to accept more migrants. NPR's Ruth Sherlock on the island of Lampedusa. Ruth, thank you. Thanks so much. 13,000 auto workers are still on strike in Michigan, Missouri, and Ohio. No justice, no jeeps! No justice, no jeeps! The United Auto Workers is trying a new strategy, striking against the big three all at once. And now union president Sean Fain is turning things up a notch. If we don't make serious progress by noon on Friday, September 22nd, more locals will be called on to stand up and join the strike. As NPR's Andrea Shu reports, the question on everyone's minds is, which plants will be targeted next? When Sean Fain first announced that only three plants would go on strike first, there was some surprise, confusion, even disappointment among union members. I feel he should have hit at least six to ten major plants. That's Jerry Coleman, who works at the Stellantis Jeep plant in Toledo, Ohio. But even he's game to let this play out. After all, he is pleased that the UAW is hitting Ford, GM, and Stellantis all at once, something that's never been done before. All of this is a pretty engaging strategy, I think, that 
really is a sign of newfound militancy within the UAW. Eric Loomis wrote the book A History of America in Ten Strikes. He says this new strategy is all about keeping options open while ratcheting up pressure on companies. It does create a scenario in which the companies can't really prepare, right? Not knowing which factory is going to be next means that they don't know where in their supply chains this is going to hit. And there's also a practical consideration. The UAW has an $825 million strike fund. It's paying striking workers $500 a week, so having fewer out on the picket lines conserves resources. Now, the UAW has not ruled out an all-out strike, but nor has the union ruled out the possibility that some striking workers could be sent back to their jobs, which would also be smart, Loomis says. You know, nobody really wants to be on the picket line for months on end. You know, really long strikes do not generally win. Of course, the automakers have been deploying strategies of their own. Ford has provided a point-by-point takedown of Fain's talking points, including the claim that auto workers make poverty wages. Ford points out that their average union employee makes $112,000 a year in wages and benefits. If all the UAW demands were put in place, Ford CEO Jim Farley told CNBC that would rise to close to $300,000 a year. School teacher in the U.S. makes $66,000. Some of the military or firemen makes mid-50,000. This is four, five times, six times what they make. There's no way we can be sustainable as a company. That's Jim Farley's compensation last year, by the way, was $21 million. The automakers are also ramping up pressure on workers themselves. Ford has laid off 600 non-striking workers in what the company calls a ripple effect. Folks can't do their jobs if they don't get materials from a part of their plant that is shut down. Now, it's not clear how much progress has to be made before Friday to prevent an expansion of the strike. Labor experts like Sharon Block of Harvard Law school are watching these developments with interest. Those of us who have watched this kind of thing for a long time, it's just fascinating to see where it's going to go next. As with so many other things, Sean Fain is keeping everyone guessing. Andrea Shu, NPR News. On Capitol Hill today, a group of House Democrats is making another attempt to restore the Voting Rights Act. Some of that landmark law's key protections against racial discrimination in elections have been dismantled by the U.S. Supreme Court over the past decade. But a new voting rights bill faces tough odds of becoming law. NPR's Hansi Luong explains. Congress is divided, but Democratic Representative Terry Sewell of Alabama says she's not giving up just like the namesake of the bill she's reintroducing, John Lewis. Months before he died in 2020, the civil rights icon returned to the bridge in Selma where police bludgeoned him and other peaceful protesters on Bloody Sunday, 1965, galvanizing the push to pass the Voting Rights Act. Well, John Lewis, stricken with cancer, came out on that bridge and he said to us, We must keep the faith, keep our eyes on the prize. That prize is equal access to the ballot box which Sewell says has become harder to reach in many states over the past 10 years. 
what we see is more restrictive laws since 2013. I have the opinion of the court this morning in case 1296, Shelby County versus Holder. That's when Chief Justice John Roberts led the conservative majority of the U.S. Supreme Court in striking down what's known as the pre-clearance formula. It was used to determine which states and counties with a history of racial discrimination had to get approval from the Justice Department or a federal court before changing any election rules. Any racial discrimination in voting is too much. But our country has changed in the past 50 years. And the pre-clearance formula under the Voting Rights Act, the court ruled, was out of date. That's why a key part of Representative Sewell's bill proposes a new formula based on the number of voting rights violations by a state or county in the past 25 years. It's not enough to be able to sue after the fact. We need a prophylactic measure by which we stop laws from coming into effect in jurisdictions where they've had a history of voter discrimination. Do you have any Republican co-sponsors for this bill? I do not. And in a Republican-controlled House, that means the chances of Sewell's voting rights bill becoming law this Congress are slim to none. Voting rights has really uh, it's become quite polarizing. Sarah Bender is a political science professor at George Washington University. Republicans really see reform of the Voting Rights Act as giving a boost or an opportunity to Democrats to improve turnout on their side. Still, even if Democrats were able to get this voting rights bill signed into law, Addison Francois, a professor at Georgetown Law, says it will likely have to face another political reality, the Supreme Court's conservative supermajority. It is a good policy to propose if you believe that the Supreme Court is going to look at this legislation in good faith. I am not, however, convinced that even this new preclearance provision would be upheld by the Supreme Court. As for Representative Terry Sewell, are you worried about the court? Of course, one worries about whether or not the court would actually decide in one's favor. But I have to tell you, I think all people were shocked and surprised that this Supreme Court did the right thing in the Milligan case. For that Alabama congressional redistricting case, the Supreme Court decided in June to uphold its past rulings on what's known as Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. But this month, Alabama asked the court to revisit the case. Sewell says she hopes the court won't and she'll continue to fight for the full protections of the Voting Rights Act. Anzila Wong, NPR News, Washington. listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Thanks for joining us on this Tuesday afternoon. Coming up in about 20 minutes, Azerbaijan has attacked Armenian forces as the official peacekeeper in the region, Russia, is absorbed by its war in Ukraine. That story and much more is still ahead. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Kahal Brera, a humanistic Jewish congregation celebrating the high holidays in person and online. For more info and activities, go to visitkb.org. And Bridgewater State University, hosting Nobel Peace Prize laureate Lech Walesa on campus October 3rd. Bridgew.edu slash events. The Dow closed down three-tenths of a percent today. S&P and Nasdaq also ended the session with losses. Each gave up about two-tenths of a percent. The state's latest unemployment numbers point to a positive trend. 
Unemployment rates dropped in 10 labor markets across the state in August compared to July. Nine other areas stayed the same. Five had higher unemployment rates month over month. Statewide, the unemployment rate was 2.9 percent last month. That's a full percentage point lower than the national average. The North Shore area, that includes Beverly, Peabody, and Salem, saw the largest annual job growth in the state at 3.4 percent. The forecast is coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge School of Culinary Arts in Porter Square. With culinary and pastry certificate and diploma programs for aspiring chefs, cambridgeculinary.com or on their app. And Cambridge Science Festival, September 25th through October 1st. Discover cutting-edge technology, celebrate innovation, witness the future of fashion, and more. Game two for the Red Sox and Rangers down in Texas tonight. We'll see... The uh, Red Sox going up against a former Sox ace pitcher. It'll be Tanner Houck for Boston versus Nathan Nivaldi for the Rangers. 8.05 start time. Clear skies tonight. Temperatures in the upper 50s. Tomorrow, sunny skies, fair weather clouds. Highs about 74 degrees. 72 degrees now in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Amgen, a biotechnology company working to fight the world's toughest diseases. In a new era of human health, Amgen is dedicated to accelerating the pace of change to push beyond what's known today. From Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution to help businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates, all from one place. Learn more at indeed.com NPR. And from listeners like you, who donate to this NPR station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Russia's war against Ukraine. Coups, climate change. Those are just some of the bleak themes that world leaders are debating at the United Nations. This year, Ukraine's president, Volodymyr Zelensky, is attending, and he's warning that Russia must be held to account for using food and energy as weapons of war. And the goal of the present war against Ukraine is to turn our lands, our people, our lives, our resources into a weapon against you, against the international rules-based order. For more on Zelensky's speech and others, here's NPR's Michelle Kellerman reporting from the United Nations. U.N. Secretary General Antonio Guterres says the world is unhinged. There has been, in his words, a surge of conflicts, coups, and chaos. Guterres wants countries to come together and compromise to reform the U.N., but some are not even abiding by their basic obligations under the U.N. Charter. Exhibit A, Russia's invasion of Ukraine. The war, in violation of the United Nations Charter and international law, has unleashed an exodus of horror. While many countries are worried that the war in Ukraine is taking attention away from other problems, Guterres says the conflict has serious implications for the rest of the world. President Biden, in his speech, echoed that. Like every nation in the world, the United States wants this war to end. No nation wants this war to end more than Ukraine. But Biden says Russia cannot be allowed to, in his words, brutalize Ukraine without paying a price, and the world can't just abandon its principles of sovereignty and independence. If we allow Ukraine to be carved up, is the independence of any nation secure? I'd respectfully suggest the answer is no. We have to stand up to this naked aggression today and deter other would-be aggressors tomorrow. 
Russian President Vladimir Putin is not attending the U.N. high-level week, so only Russia's ambassador was listening to Biden in the chambers, looking distracted on his phone when Biden spoke about Ukraine. Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky was there, wearing his trademark military-style green shirt. And when he took the podium, Zelensky blasted Russia for weaponizing food, energy, nuclear power plants, and even children who have been abducted by Russia. Those children in Russia are taught to hate Ukraine, and all ties with their families are broken. And this is clearly a genocide when hatred is weaponized against one nation. It never stops there. Brazil's president lamented that there's too much talk about military aid to Ukraine and not enough about diplomacy. South Africa's president, Cyril Ramaphosa, says he met with Zelensky, who told him that Ukraine and Russia have made some progress in prisoner exchanges. As the international community, we must do everything within our means to enable meaningful dialogue, just as we should refrain from any actions that fuel conflict. But Zelensky wants more from leaders like that. He wants them to back his ideas for how the war should end with Ukraine's territorial integrity intact. Look, for the first time in modern history, we have a real chance to end the aggression on the terms of the nation which was attacked. And the Ukrainian president says countries around the world should have an interest in that, if only to uphold international norms. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, the United Nations. Next time you watch the president give a speech on TV, look carefully at the flag behind him, the one with the presidential seal. You know, an eagle clutches an olive branch in one claw and arrows in the other. Somewhere on that flag is a name, the name of the person who spent months hand-embroidering that work of art here in a room in Northeast Philadelphia. It's the world for me. <laughs> it's the world. Someone like Nancy Kim. It's made me so proud to be here, to work with for the especially big president flag. When she came to the U.S. from Cambodia 30 years ago, she didn't speak any English. There are 13 people doing this intricate work at the Defense Logistics Agency Troop Support Flag Room almost all women, and most of them immigrants. Their workshop is in a low building on a military base with jet planes parked at the entrance. Young Lamb is working on an eagle's tail feather, stitching tiny diagonal lines of white and gray thread. She learned to sew as a kid in Vietnam. How long does it take you to sew the one feather? It's about one and a half days. One and a half days for that one feather. To complete an entire flag can take six months. And it is extremely competitive to land a job here. People wait years for a position to open up when someone retires. This is the only team in the world that makes the presidential flags that go to the White House. Adam Wallstrom is the flag room supervisor. This is something that has been done this way for over 170 years here in Philadelphia. And this is a product that is incredibly stunning when seen in person. It has a vibrance and a life to it that you don't get with the machine technology. The artists wind the thread on an old spindle made of wrought iron and wood. Then they weave it into a long braid before they stitch it into the flag. And they don't only make presidential flags here. There are also hand-stitched flags for the vice president and each branch of the military. Wallstrom says these women think of themselves as 21st century Betsy Rosses. There's going to be a unique 
uh, style that comes from each individual artist, each one of those million stitches, you're going to get a very unique and personalized piece out of it. Is million a real number? Yes. Upwards of a million stitches. I want my eagle to pop off the page. Duane Sante Johnson has studied hand embroidery all over the world, England, France, South Korea, but she grew up here in the U.S. We are artists, but embroidery is my tool. And do you feel like you can express that artistic vision even when you're following a predetermined design? Let me put it to you this way. When you go to work every day, right, it's predetermined that you're probably going to wear a blazer, you're probably going to wear a shirt, and you're probably going to wear pants. I'm guessing, right? Good guess. If that's the case, do you still get to show who you are emotionally by what you choose to wear? Yeah, so tell me what the equivalent so is the of that. the same thing with this is if you actually look at this, you'll see that everyone actually has a different stitchway pattern like our stitches is just like penmanship it's nothing is related to the other person for one of you sante johnson this work is both a form of artistic expression and a way of connecting with her roots i was born on vandenberg air force base which is now space force base so it's all a circle because we actually made the first space force flag here huh how did that feel right? to you knowing that you were making the flag for i felt like i was able to connect to my family to a language that I do, mm. that, that's in my life, mm -hmm. that they could understand the value of an art practice. My family on both sides of the family have been in the military since the Civil War. Wow. So it was my way of giving back in the way that I could express myself with the same values. Spending months to make a flag may feel like a long time, but the artisans here think about it on a different time scale. These pieces may be used for a lifetime, for more than a century even. With each stitch, they want to make sure the work will last. And thanks to member station WHYY and the Public Media Content Conference for supporting our reporting trip. You can hear more from Philly elsewhere on today's show. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Still to come on WBUR is All Things Considered. Hollywood studios may oppose strikes in real life, but on screen, they'd like plot lines where the unions and striking workers are the heroes. Bob Mondello considers the evidence coming up in about 20 minutes. Sunshine and clouds in and out this afternoon and evening. Tonight should be clear and coolish, falling to just below 60. Tomorrow should get back up to the mid-70s as sunshine returns. Thursday, too, should be generally sunny with temperatures sticking to the mid-70s. 72 degrees in Boston at 4.30. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Elliott Community Human Services, with two community behavioral health centers open 24-7 in Danvers and Lynn, ElliottCHS.org, and the Umbrella Arts Center presenting Lizzie. Lizzie Borden finally gets her say in this ghost story meets rock concert musical. Starts Thursday. More at TheUmbrellaArts.org. How will an ongoing strike against the country's largest automakers impact car buyers? It's going to drive down the supply of cars. So again, the dealerships are going to, you know, gouge people for more money. The United Auto Workers Union is threatening to strike at more plants if progress isn't made in negotiations. On the next Morning Edition from NPR News. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. Speaking on the world stage in New York today at the United Nations Gathering of World Leaders, 
President Biden made his case that the world must remain united in defending Ukraine against Russian aggression. Biden warned that no nation can be secure if, quote, we allow Ukraine to be carved up. NPR's Michelle Kellerman is covering the U.N. summit meeting in New York and has reaction from some of those gathered. There's definitely a concern by a lot of countries, especially in the developing world, that Ukraine is kind of taking up too much time and too many resources. Brazil's president, who also spoke today, said there's a lot invested in weapons and not much in development. He also talked about the need for a solution that's based on dialogue. NPR's Michelle Kellerman, the U.N. Secretary General, also mentioned the suffering of Ukrainian civilians in the nearly 19-month-old Russian invasion. Ukraine's President Zelensky is also attending the summit and warned other world leaders that the same could happen to them. The war in Sudan has brought the country's health care system to its knees and children are paying the price. NPR's Aya Boutraoui reports on the more than 1,000 children who've died in Sudanese refugee camps. Fighting in Sudan has displaced more than 5 million people, including around 1 million who fled to neighboring countries. The UN Refugee Agency and the World Health Organization say more than 1,200 refugee children under the age of 5 have died since mid-May. Their deaths are due to a combination of a suspected measles outbreak and malnutrition. There have also been outbreaks of cholera and malaria in camps housing people from Sudan and neighboring countries. The UN agencies say more deaths can be prevented if international donors increase their support and if the fighting in Sudan ends. A high-level meeting on Wednesday on the sidelines of the UN General Assembly is aimed at closing huge funding gaps for UN agencies in Sudan. You're listening to NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. For the first time since 1999, the Massachusetts Board of Education is updating the way it wants public schools to teach health and sexual education. WBUR's Max Larkin reports advocates say it's an important step in filling critical gaps in student knowledge. The framework covers all forms of health education, but it replaces a framework that barely discussed consent and homosexuality and didn't include menstruation or gender identity. The result has been under-informed young adults, according to Nina Brothers, a youth activist working with Planned Parenthood. Just last night, I co-led a workshop at my college on birth control basics because my fellow students and I have received many rudimentary questions as to how they can protect themselves. The new framework won't dictate local approaches. Sex education still isn't mandated under state law, and where it's offered, families can still opt out. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Max Larkin. The city of Quincy is paying tribute to those killed in the September 11th terror attacks. A new mobile exhibit features artifacts including steel beams from the World Trade Center and videos from first responders. Two Quincy natives who died in the 9-11 attacks are also being remembered. Kevin Connors was working in the World Trade Center on 9-11. Susan McKay was on one of the flights that crashed into the towers. The exhibit is located at the General's Bridge and Park behind Hancock Street. It'll be open to the public tomorrow through Saturday. The city of Boston has been awarded a new professional women's soccer team. The National Women's Soccer League announced that an all-female investment group is bringing the team to the city. The team doesn't have a name yet. It's expected to begin playing in the league in 2026. The forecast is coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Xfinity Internet with the Xfinity 10G network. So everyone at home can be online even at peak hours. Xfinity from Comcast. The future starts now. And Brookline Bank. 
where financial solutions are crafted to the needs of your business and delivered with a hands-on approach, committed to your success. Learn more at brooklinebank.com. Member FDIC. The forecast, nicely boring. Clear skies tonight, dipping to the upper 50s. Tomorrow, generally sunny, breezy in the mid-70s. Thursday, same thing, sunny in the mid-70s. We could see a few more clouds move in on Friday, but it should stay dry. This is WBUR, 72 degrees in Boston at 435. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Easy Cater, committed to helping companies find food for meetings and team lunches. With catering menus from restaurants nationwide, online ordering, and 24-7 live support. EasyCater.com. And from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution to help businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one place. Learn more at Indeed.com slash NPR. This is NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. The nominations for the 24th annual Latin Grammys were announced this morning. And if you ask our resident Latin music experts, what's notable about the nominations is what's missing. Namely, much love for Mexican regional music and musicians. The genre has been experiencing a wave of unprecedented popularity, but... Recognition from the Latin Recording Academy seems to be lagging behind. Felix Contreras and Ana Maria Sayer are co-hosts of NPR's Alt Latino podcast. Welcome back, y'all. Hey, Juana. Thanks for having us. Thanks for being here. All right. Let's start out with the good news. Mexican regional music didn't get completely locked out. What are we listening to right now? Okay, so this is a Grupo Frontera Bad Bunny collaboration called Un Por Ciento, one of the biggest hits of the year and written by songwriter Edgar Barrera. Now, he is maybe the biggest songwriter we had this year in the Latin space. He wrote a ton of the regional songs that topped the charts this year, which made a massive impact. But he also wrote across the genre for artists like Manuel Turizo, Carol G., names you'd never really associate with this music. Now, Un Por Ciento and another huge hit, Ella Baila Sola, were both nominated for Song of the Year. But that's about where the recognition for regional Mexican music stops. The Academy has always lightly acknowledged regional Mexican music, relegating it to its own separate categories, Arguably something that has echoed throughout the way the Latin music industry has generally talked about this style of music. But this year, the dominance and importance of the genre of regional Mexican for both Latin music and Latinos at large is undeniable. These songs dominated the Billboard Top 200 charts this year and took regional Mexican to places around the world we've never seen before. In fact, our colleague Ada Peralta even heard it in Havana last week. You know, it's essential that the Grammys would finally acknowledge the genre in a big way. But besides the Song of the Year nominations for Ella by La Sola and Un Por Ciento, they pretty much kept these artists relegated to their own specific categories. I mean, I feel like the three of us have talked a couple of times about how big this genre success has been for Latin music. So why do you all think it is that the Latin Grammys didn't do more to acknowledge it? I mean, you know, I think we did all have higher hopes, but I have to say the Academy has generally always had a problem giving space to and celebrating music that seems to really resonate with people. But 
that I hate to say, I don't know if they see it as sophisticated enough. We have to point out that both the Latin Grammys and the Grammy Academies are both made up of professionals from the industry. Artists, producers, many behind the scenes professionals. Some say both academies are notoriously out of touch with the fans. Go back to the earliest days of hip hop and how long it took for those artists to become part of the mainstream. Reggaeton had the same issue in the early 2000s and, in fact, is still mostly on the outside looking in. What regional Mexican and reggaeton have in common? They both come from marginalized communities. They represent themes and issues that impact everyday people in Latin America that the Academy maybe isn't quite ready to see promoted while trying to simultaneously legitimize the value of Latin music as a whole. As you can tell, it's, it's all pretty tricky. Yeah, I mean, have the academies responded to this sort of criticism? The academies are like this big giant ship, right? And and they can't exactly pivot like a speedboat. And I think that there have been efforts to try to, to meet these kind of changes. But what's great about both the Grammy and Latin Grammy academies is that while they can sometimes overemphasize the poppiest of pop at the expense of art, eventually they catch up and they readjust. An example is 2011 when the Grammy Academy eliminated the Latin jazz category. There was so much pushback that a year later it was back. And in particular, current members of both academies are extra sensitive to being as inclusive as possible. That's coming from conversations I've had with members from both academies. So they're making an effort. They are making an effort, I think. Okay, I've got one more question about the awards themselves. The Latin Grammys have been taking place in Las Vegas for more than 20 years, but this year in Sevilla, Spain, what's going on there? Okay, that's a particularly interesting question, and and it's something we're going to dig into later in the podcast, but one of the things that it touches on is the idea of representation within Latin music. There's been some pushback lately about some of the artists from Spain coming in on the Latin music area, or even just Latin in general. You know, this goes back to, you know, the colonial days, right? There's some people who are pushing back on that. So it's an interesting turn of events that they're actually happening in Spain after so much time in in Las Vegas. And we'll have something on the podcast before the Latin Grammys happen in November. NPR's Felix Contreras and Ana Maria Sayer, co-hosts of Alt Latino. Thank you guys so much. Thank Thank you. Thank you. The 24th annual Latin Grammys will take place on November 16th and will air on the Univision television network. Today, the former Soviet Republic of Azerbaijan launched what it called local anti-terrorist measures in Nagorno-Karabakh. That's the Armenian ethnic enclave within Azerbaijan that's been a source of conflict since the final years of the USSR. As NPR's Charles Maines reports from Moscow, then as now, tensions derive in part from waning Russian influence in the region. Azerbaijan's defense ministry said it launched military operations to re-establish constitutional order in Nagorno-Karabakh after six Azerbaijanis died in landmine explosions the ministry blamed on Armenian separatists. Within hours, the government in Baku said its forces were carrying out precision airstrikes on ethnic Armenian military targets, even as witness video in Nagorno-Karabakh suggested far larger military operations were underway. Sirens rang out over the skies of Nagorno-Karabakh's capital, Stepanakert, and rolling explosions thundered in the distance. In 2020, Azerbaijan, backed by its powerful ally Turkey, fought a six-week war with Armenian forces that ended with Baku re-establishing control over much of Nagorno-Karabakh. That fighting only came to an end after Russian President Vladimir Putin negotiated a ceasefire and dispatched Russian peacekeepers to the region. 
but 120,000 ethnic Armenians are still there, claiming independence, which analysts say leaves Azerbaijan's military victory incomplete. This is the latest in a escalation of pressure designed to force out the Armenian population from Karabakh. Richard Gurgasan is with the Regional Studies Center in the Armenian capital Yerevan. He says Baku's military superiority and Russia's preoccupation with Ukraine have provided Azerbaijan with a window of opportunity. Russia remains weak and overwhelmed by its failed invasion of Ukraine. So in many ways, this is as much about Moscow as it is about Yerevan. But I think there's a real danger of miscalculation of Azerbaijan going too far too fast. In the Armenian capital, crowds throng the city's central square, demanding their government intervene militarily. Armenian anger is also directed at Russia for failing to live up to its traditional security role in the region. Meanwhile, back in Moscow, the foreign ministry spokeswoman, Maria Zakharova, appealed for a return to diplomacy and the terms of a ceasefire Russia brokered three years ago. Less clear is whether Azerbaijan or Armenia are likewise ready to wind back the clock. Charles Maines, NPR News, Moscow. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. People who live in rural America have higher rates of certain health problems compared to people living in urban areas. But rural residents have fewer primary care doctors to treat them. Ariel Zients with our partner, KFF Health News, has this audio postcard about an Alabama doctor who is ready to retire but can't imagine leaving her community without the care they need. Dr. Terry Vester met her husband, Al, when the two were studying at Howard University in Washington, D.C. The medical students both had scholarships that required them to practice in an underserved area. So in the early 80s, the couple moved to the town of Lafayette in east-central Alabama. They could have moved on to a big city practice, but instead they opted for a life in this small town with their four children. And so we decided to stay, and we've been here ever since. It became home. Over the decades, the Vesters watched the local hospital close and other physicians depart. They eventually became the only primary care doctors in town. The Vesters are now in their late 60s and would like to retire. Terry Vester wants to spend more time with her grandson and aging parents but she can't imagine abandoning her patients. There are people here that still need in-town doctors, so we want to stay here to take care of them until someone else is here to take care of them. One of her patients is Charity Hodge, an outgoing 29-year-old working hard to manage her diabetes. Take a deep breath. Are you still at home with your mother? Yes. Okay. Is she doing good? Yes, she's doing very well. Hodge remembers how she felt when she learned her doctor was hoping to retire. I was like, oh my gosh, no. Well, I'm happy for the retirement part, but that's my favorite doctor, so I'm crying on the inside. <laughs> Hodge grew up in Lafayette. It's a small town with fewer than 3,000 residents and high rates of poverty. Black residents, who make up 70% of the town, are much more likely to live in poverty than white residents. Dr. Vester still makes occasional house calls and cares for entire families. She recently learned that one of her elderly patients had died. I see her daughters and then her children, their children, and they have children. So that's four generations right there. But the Vesters can't be on call 24-7, and Lafayette has no urgent care clinic. So some residents rely on the one place where health professionals are always on the clock, 
the fire department. People show up at all hours, asking medics for help with things like checking their blood pressure. The fire chief is instead encouraging people to use a new telehealth booth where they can video chat with remote providers. Students and faculty from Auburn University also recently began offering drop-in clinics for things like hearing tests and health education. But these options aren't primary care like the Vesters offer. Vester Health Center, may I help you? Dr. Vester is excited about the new health resources, but she said they can't replace the relationship with your doctor. You have a connection with someone, so you sort of know the whole story. You know where they are in their journey. Vester hopes that some of the Auburn students will stick around and work in Lafayette. She also plans to reach out to medical schools to recruit someone to replace her and her husband. She's confident she'll find a doctor who falls in love with Lafayette, just like she and Al did. I'm Arielle Zients in Lafayette, Alabama. That was Arielle Zients with our partner, KFF Health News. Listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Nice to have you with us on this Tuesday afternoon. Coming up in about 15 minutes, the prisoner swap that allowed five Americans who had been detained in Iran for years to return to the U.S. and what the U.S. had to give up in the deal. That story and much more still ahead. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Bassberry and Sims Healthcare Law Practice, advising academic medical centers and healthcare providers on complex legal matters nationwide. More at bassberry.com. And the lyric stage with Assassins. Stephen Sondheim's musical masterpiece looks inside the shattered minds of presidential assassins through October 15th, lyricstage.com. Nathan Navaldi will be pitching against his old team tonight down in Houston as the Red Sox take on the Rangers for the second game of a three-game series. Tanner Houck will pitch for Boston, 8.05 start time. In the forecast, clear tonight and cooler temperatures in the upper 50s. Tomorrow and Thursday could be a repeat of today. Generally sunny skies, fair weather clouds, and nice breeze with high temperatures in the mid-70s. If you get up before sunrise tomorrow, look eastward. You should see Venus, the brightest planet. It's especially bright right now through early October. Mercury is also up early, not as bright as Venus. Mercury is low on the horizon. Venus is higher. It's 449. WBUR supporters include the Harvard Institute for Learning and Retirement. Join a vibrant academic community. Enjoy in-person peer-led courses on their Cambridge campus, speaker events, special interest groups, and more. Apply by October 25th to start in February. To learn more, visit their website, the Harvard Institute for Learning and Retirement, and Fresh City Kitchen. With a goal of delivering holiday catering everyone will keep talking about, freshcitykitchen.com. Yellowstone National Park's iconic bison herds. The buffalo, when they start following their migration pattern, their natural instinct is to come out of Yellowstone. They don't understand these borders that we've created for them, that the government's created for them. When they leave the park, they're not protected. So this year, more than 1,500 out-of-bounds bison were quarantined, hunted, or sent to slaughter. Learn more on point tomorrow at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. The image is iconic. I'll wait for the ship to come and take me home. Sally Fields' Norma Ray atop her work table in a noisy textile factory. She's just been fired. The police are on the way. 
and she's holding up a piece of cardboard on which she's scrawled just one word, union. Every eye in the factory is on her, and one by one, her co-workers, many of whom she's angered and alienated, shut down their machines. The silence is deafening, a cinematic portrait of worker solidarity that moved 1970s audiences precisely because it was so rare. From the earliest days of Hollywood, producers and studios had done everything they could to demonize unions both on and off screen. A 1925 Disney cartoon, Alice's Egg Plant, depicts a pointedly Russian Little Red Henski inciting a strike among Alice's previously happy hens, and outspoken anti-communist Walt Disney was still beating that drum two decades later when he testified to HUAC, the House Un-American Activities Committee. The thing that I resent the most is that they are able to get into these unions and take them over and represent to the world that a group of people that are in my plant that I know are good 100% Americans are supporting all of those ideologies, and it's not so. Disney was hardly alone in seeking to counter union organizers. MGM's Louis B. Mayer told his biographer that one of the ideas behind the formation of the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences, the group that hands out the Oscars, was to encourage actors, directors, designers to think of themselves not as workers, but as artists, so they wouldn't join Hollywood's technicians in forming labor unions all while Hollywood made films that depicted labor organizers as communists and labor bosses as thugs and gangsters. You just dug your own grave, go for it. You're dead on this waterfront. In this one, director Ilya Kazan, reviled by many in the industry for destroying careers when he named names to Huac, offered his 1954 drama On the Waterfront as a rebuttal. The film depicted Marlon Brando as noble for his character's testimony against corrupt union bosses. Same, please. Terry Malloy. Swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth, help you God. Right. I do. I do. A less jaundiced view of unions was also released that year, Salt of the Earth, a story of Mexican-American miners and their wives battling prejudice and unfair labor practices. Are you going to let us pass, or do I have to call the sheriff? It offered a more favorable view of unions created outside the studio system, said its producer Paul Jericho, by artists who could no longer work inside it. One of the reasons we made Thought of the Earth after we were blacklisted was to commit a crime worthy of the punishment. The film used the actual mine workers and their wives, essentially reenacting their own 15-month struggle. Listen, Mr. Barton, blood in that mine. The blood of my friends, all because they had to work alone. Salt of the Earth is regarded today as a classic, though the major studios blocked it from being widely shown in the 1950s by threatening to boycott theaters that played it. The studio portrait of labor relations back then? Factory worker Doris Day, pushing for an extra seven and a half cents an hour in the pajama game. The time and a half for overtime comes to exactly $1,705.48. Labor relations played for laughs with song and dance in 1957. The laughs had maybe soured for studio heads by 1960. That's when both the actors and the writers last went on strike together. In an odd twist, the head of the actors' union who called for a strike in 1960 was Ronald Reagan, who would later campaign against big labor as president. 
In any event, there weren't a lot of jokey movies about labor for a while, but Hollywood never stopped making films about union corruption, from Blue Collar with its Detroit auto workers to Martin Scorsese's The Irishman, about a hitman who claimed to have killed Teamsters boss Jimmy Hoffa. We're going at war with these people. Still, with the decline of the studio system, independent filmmakers began exploring labor stories that centered on the little guy in, say, the coal mining documentary, Harlan County, USA. We've been put in jail. We've been shot at, we've had dynamite thrown at us, and then you don't want us to have nothing. Well, I tell you, Mr. Horn, I'm going to be standing right there on that picket line looking at you just as long as it takes. In the mining drama, Mate One, set a half century earlier, James Earl Jones contends not just with management, but with the guys down the mine, who hurl invective at him, only some of it racial. And I can't help that the way white folks is, but I ain't never been called no scab. And I ain't fixing to start up now. I go ton for ton loading coal with any man here. And when I do, I expect the same dollar for the same work. That point is immediately reinforced by union organizer Chris Cooper. You ain't men to that coal company. Your equipment, like a shovel, a gondola car, a hunk of wood brace. They'll use you till you wear out or you break down or you're buried under a slate fall and then they'll get a new one. And they don't care what color it is or where it comes from. Now, a couple of things are worth noting. The first is that stories about strikes go back at least to the ancient Greeks. In 411 BC, the comedy Lysistrata had war-weary Greek wives going on a sex strike to force their husbands to negotiate peace, a storyline Spike Lee adapted in Chirac for gang wars in Chicago. And total abstinence from knocking the boots. Oh! Yeah! I mean, you really think something like that could bring peace? Y'all know the power we have over them withholding just a day. Imagine a month, a year. Also, note that this genre is more robust overseas. Sergei Eisenstein arguably started it with his 1925 silent epic, Strike, artful Soviet propaganda about class war between virtuous workers and vicious overlords. Foreign film stars have long embraced labor sagas, Gerard Depardieu in the French costume epic Germinal, Marcello Mastroianni in Italy's The Organizer. A whole subgenre of worker comedy sprang up in England, former steel workers in the Full Monty, out-of-work musicians in Brassed Off, queer activists raising money for striking miners in Pride. Die! Your gays have arrived! But another thing to note is that if money is the measure of these films, the studios are winning. Star-studded mob flicks are a blockbuster genre, and no matter how inclined audiences are to root for the little guy, human interest sagas can't compete commercially. Are we just going to take what they give us? No! Or are we going to strike? Yeah! If we don't act together, then we're not. Even when given the full Little Mermaid, Beauty and the Beast treatment. Open the gates and see Newsies, which put New York's 1899 Newsboy strike to music, was a box office flop for, of all studios, Disney. Still, you can't accuse the studio of burying it. Twenty years later, Disney's stage version played for a thousand performances on Broadway because that central story is still potent. David and Goliath, workers and bosses, artists and studios. I'm Bob Mandela.
listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Angie, dedicated to helping homeowners find skilled pros to get their home projects done well. From everyday repairs to dream remodels, reviews, pricing, and booking are at Angie.com or on the Angie app. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement designed by gastroenterologists to help relieve occasional bloating, gas, and abdominal discomfort. More at AlignProbiotics.com. From Fisher Investments, Fisher Investments' team of specialists offer guidance on investing, retirement income, and Social Security. FisherInvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. For the perfect spot to host your next event, discover City Space, WBUR's hidden gem on Commonwealth Avenue. Whether for a gala, board meeting, or wedding, City Space is the ideal setting for unforgettable occasions in a gorgeous state-of-the-art venue. We'll help make your vision a reality. More at WBUR.org rentals. I'm healthcare reporter Martha Biebinger, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. The number of people seeking emergency shelter in Massachusetts has almost doubled since last year. At the same time, more than 2,000 of the state's subsidized apartments sit empty. Some of the homes have been vacant for years. This one has been vacant for the longest time. So this has been vacant for 917 days. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. WBUR investigation coming up. Also ahead, a growing number of Republican lawmakers say they're ready to cut off funding for Ukraine. I agree that the Ukrainians hold the high moral ground and that Putin is a thug that invaded the country, but why should we be paying all the bills? We'll check in on the movement to eliminate cash bail on a national level after Illinois abolished it this week. These stories and Wall Street numbers coming up. The forecast, too. It's 5.01. Live from NPR News in New York, I'm Jack Spear. Appearing before the United Nations General Assembly today, President Joe Biden made his case that the world needs to remain united in defending Ukraine against Russian aggression. Biden warning that no nation can be secure if we allow Ukraine to be carved up, and he called on world leaders not to let support diminish as the war drags on with no end in sight. For the second year in a row, this gathering dedicated to peaceful resolution of conflicts is darkened by the shadow of war. An illegal war of conquest brought without provocation by Russia against its neighbor Ukraine. Like every nation in the world, the United States wants this war to end. No nation wants this war to end more than Ukraine. General Ukrainian leader Zelensky also meets with UN General Assembly later this week. The top Democrat in the Senate is warning the short-term government is spending bill that's pending in the House is a non-starter. NPR's Windsor Johnson reports with less than two weeks to go, the chances of government shutdown are increasing. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer blasted the Republican-crafted House bill, which includes no additional aid for Ukraine. Providing aid is not just a matter of Ukrainian security, but of American security, too. 
For MAGA House Republicans to oppose Ukrainian aid is, is a terrible, dangerous mistake. President Biden is lobbying Congress to approve a $40 billion emergency spending package that includes support for Ukraine's counteroffensive against Russia, as well as disaster relief. But the majority of House Republicans are refusing to approve the supplemental assistance. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky is scheduled to visit Capitol Hill on Thursday. Windsor Johnston, NPR News, Washington. Former New York City Mayor Rudy Giuliani is being sued by his former attorney for more than a million dollars in alleged unpaid fees. It's the latest legal challenge for Giuliani as we hear from NPR's Ryan Lucas. The lawsuit against Giuliani was filed in New York State Court by his one-time attorney, Robert Costello, and Costello's law firm. The attorneys represented Giuliani from late 2019 through mid-2023 in a range of legal issues. That includes a federal criminal investigation in New York, a state criminal investigation tied to the 2020 election in Georgia, as well as the criminal investigation led by a Justice Department special counsel, also into efforts to overturn the 2020 presidential election. According to the complaint, Giuliani racked up more than $1.5 million in legal bills, but has paid the firm only $214,000. The lawsuit is seeking payment of the remaining balance of more than $1.3 million, plus interest. Ryan Lucas, NPR News, Washington. Stocks gained ground on lost ground rather on Wall Street today as investors await the outcome of a Federal Reserve meeting. The Dow fell 106 points. The Nasdaq was down 32 points today. You're listening to NPR. This is WBR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Northeastern University says it's getting $17.5 million in CDC funding to establish a new center for predicting future pandemics. WBUR's Priyanka Dale McCluskey reports the goal is to better track infectious diseases, including COVID. Researchers say they'll use a variety of data sources to make predictions that policymakers can use to help keep people safe. Alessandro Vespignani is a computational epidemiologist at Northeastern. He says more accurate projections will also help the healthcare system prepare for surges. Doctors, uh, uh, nurses, uh, uh, healthcare workers, what we are doing with the center is to provide them the intelligence to fight better the disease. His team will track and try to predict a wide range of diseases from COVID and flu to Ebola and mosquito-borne illnesses. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Priyanka Dayal McCluskey. The Massachusetts Board of Elementary and Secondary Education has voted unanimously to update the state's guidelines for health and physical education. The framework includes suggestions for how teachers can talk about gender and sexual identity with students based on their age. Rochelle Engler-Bennett worked on the guidelines for the state education department. The overarching goal of this framework is to foster healthy, safe, equitable, and inclusive learning environments that enables success in school and in life for students of all identities and backgrounds. This will be the first update in almost a quarter century. State education officials say they provide training for school administrators and teachers. Residents in several Massachusetts communities are heading to the polls today. They include Revere, Brockton, Gloucester, Amesbury, Melrose, and Fall River, where mayoral elections are being held. Polls will stay open until 8 tonight. Nice-looking day leads to a clear night tonight. Should be breezy, a little bit cooler in the upper 50s. Tomorrow should be a repeat of today. Sunny skies, some fair weather clouds around, with high temperatures about 74 degrees again. 71 now in Boston at 5.06. WBUR supporters include Melville Charitable Trust, committed to ensuring all people have a safe, stable, and affordable home that allows them to thrive. 
Information about ways to prevent and solve homelessness is at melvilletrust.org. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. For eight years, the Iranian-American businessman Siamak Namazi was imprisoned in Iran. He spent most of that time behind bars at Tehran's Evin prison, where he described sleeping on the floor in a closet-sized cell. Well, today he is walking on U.S. soil again, one of five U.S. prisoners released in a controversial deal with Iran. In exchange for Iran freeing Namazi and the other Americans, the U.S. agreed to grant clemency to five Iranian nationals in custody here in the U.S., and the U.S. gave Iran access to $6 billion in Iranian oil money that was essentially frozen in a South Korean bank. Well, Abram Paley is the State Department's Deputy Special Envoy for Iran. He was on the plane home with the detainees, and he is here in our studio now. Welcome. Thank you very much. Great to be here on this happy day, Mary Louise. Tell me about that plane ride. It was incredible, and what an emotional day uh, to see and hear the strength and compassion that these Americans had as they were returning to see their family members after so many years. In you were there waiting in Doha as they as they transited from Tehran through Doha, and then you were on the long flight home to D.C.? That's exactly right. So we were there in Doha on the tarmac and saw and witnessed the first moments that they had breaths of fresh air uh, after years in prison. Uh, they were, you know, on their way home, escaping this terrible, uh, horrible ordeal and back to see their families. How are they doing? I mean, describe their, their state of health, their state of mind. They're doing well. They're in good spirits. They could not be more happy to be back with their loved ones. And, and so it was just an amazing moment to see this joyous occasion in person. Pull back the curtain a little bit on how this deal came to be, because speaking of Doha, this is where the the talks took place. And when I say talks, the U.S. was there, Iran was there, you both had teams there. You never met face to face. You stayed in different hotels. How did it work? From day one of this administration, the president and the secretary have been very clear that they will do whatever it takes to bring Americans home. And then finally, in Qatar, we found a path forward and through principled uh, diplomacy, principled negotiations, we were happy with uh, what we ended up with. This was and actually the Qataris shuttling back and forth between your hotels? This, uh, that's exactly right. So the Qataris shuttled back and forth and played a, a key role in helping bridge the gap between us and the Iranians. And what we came out with was a deal that we think was wonderful for these people to be reunited with their families and a good deal for the American people. Um, even as Americans obviously are celebrating the return home of five fellow Americans, you will have seen criticism of this deal, and I want to invite you to respond. One concern is this deal will only encourage more Iranian hostage-taking. Will it? This deal was about bringing these Americans home, and it did just that. Being able to be there and witness the moments uh, when they saw their loved ones for the first time, when they were able to hug them, made it clear that this deal was the right deal to take. This but if you were sitting in Tehran watching this unfold, would you think, hey, that worked. We got something for that. I can't speak to the Iranians and their perspective. The perspective I can speak to was the loved ones that saw their family members after years on that tarmac. And that made clear that this was the right deal. This was the deal that got them out of prison and did not let them rot away in Evan prison. I mentioned um, the other piece of this deal, which was that Iran got access to $6 billion. That money, as I understand it, is now sitting in a bank account in Qatar. The U.S., 
says Iran can only use it for food, for medicine, and so forth. But I want you to listen to, this is Republican Congressman Michael McCall. He chairs the House Foreign Affairs Committee. This was him speaking on Fox News. We all know money's fungible. And then the president of Iran just came out and said, I'm not spending it however I want to. And of course he is. And guess where it's going to go? It's going to go into terror proxy operations. It's going to go into building their nuclear you know, their nuclear, not defense system, but offensive system. Abram Paley, how can you be sure that that won't happen? So after years of principled diplomacy, we came away with a deal that we are confident in. As we've said, and as the Treasury Department has said, we will have strict oversight over these funds and we'll be able to see uh, what it's being used for. And if Iran is not using it for the purposes that are laid out, we will have ways to lock these funds up. Is Iran clear on that? Because Congressman McCall is correct. It is true that Iran's president, President Raisi, just said in an interview with NBC News that Iran is going to spend the $6 billion, quote, wherever we need it. I can't speak to what the Iranians are saying. I can say that I'm not surprised they need to spend this for their own domestic audiences. All I can say is I know what the terms of this deal are, and I am confident that these funds will be used only for humanitarian purposes. I mean, just one more point on this. Is it out of the realm of possibility that Iran could use this $6 billion on food, on medicine, on humanitarian things, but divert money it was spending on those things to things like funding proxy groups or its nuclear program? You know, at the end of the day, this deal is about bringing these Americans home, and it did just that. And to be able to sit there and watch the smiles on their faces and the faces of their loved ones showed that this was the right deal. Does this open the door to any other kind of talks, any other kinds of progress, any other kind of discussion between the U.S. and Iran? This deal was about this morning on the tarmac in Fort Belvoir. It's not about any change to our overall Iran policy, uh, which has remained the same. Iran remains an adversary. Iran remains a state sponsor of terrorism. This deal was about getting these Americans home. Might it, at the very least, provide some kind of floor to a relationship that has been awful? It's hard to say at this point, and we'll see. All I can say is that today, these five Americans are reunited with their loved ones. Abram Paley, he is the State Department's Deputy Special Envoy for Iran. Thank you for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky is traveling to Washington this week while Congress is debating eight, is debating $24 billion in additional aid to assist in his country's fight against Russia. Democrats are in lockstep behind President Biden's support for Ukraine, but a growing number of Republican lawmakers say they are ready to cut off funding. NPR political correspondent Susan Davis reports on the GOP divide. When Zelensky extends his hand in Washington, Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell will be at the front of the line to grasp it. In recent weeks, the Kentucky Republican has been making a public case for continued U.S. assistance to Ukraine. Helping Ukraine retake its territory means weakening, means weakening one of America's biggest strategic adversaries without firing a shot. With Democrats united behind the president, McConnell's message is clearly directed to Republicans, who are increasingly ready to end U.S. aid. There's no national security interest for us in Ukraine, and even if there were, it would be trumped by the fact that we have no money. That's fellow Kentucky Republican Rand Paul. His long-held opposition to essentially all foreign intervention once made him a fringe thinker in the party. But the rise of Trumpian America First ideology now aligns Paul with a supermajority of Republican voters. 
An August CNN poll showed that a majority of Americans say Congress should not authorize more funding for Ukraine. The opposition is driven by a sharply polarized electorate, with 71% of Republicans opposing new funding, compared to 62% of Democrats who say they support more funding. That's complicating passage for additional aid that President Biden asked for last month and McConnell once passed by the end of September. Indiana Republican Senator Mike Braun supports Ukraine, but like Paul, he just doesn't want to pay for it anymore. I agree that the Ukrainians hold the high moral ground and that Putin is a thug that invaded a country, but uh, why should we be paying all the bills for something, especially in a powder keg area like that? For other Republican opponents, like Missouri Senator Josh Hawley, the focus on Ukraine is a distraction from what he sees as a more urgent foreign policy matter. I just think as a matter of our alliance with our European allies, we just need to level with them and say, listen, we'll provide a, the nuclear umbrella in Europe, but we need you to take the lead in the conventional defense of Europe. We'll take the lead on China. We're not doing that. Most of the Senate's 49 Republicans, for now, appear to be allied with McConnell's neoconservative worldview, that not only can the U.S. help Ukraine and confront China at the same time, it has to. Here's South Carolina Republican Lindsey Graham. There is no scenario based on human nature where appeasing one bad guy makes the other bad guy less aggressive. That argument may be losing ground in the House, where Speaker McCarthy has shown tepid support for Ukraine compared to McConnell. In July, 70 House Republicans, nearly one-third of their members, voted for an amendment to the National Defense Bill that would have blocked any new funding for Ukraine. The amendment failed. But since then, opposition appears to have grown. California House Republican Mike Garcia did not vote for that amendment, and he supported earlier rounds of funding for Ukraine. But now? I don't feel comfortable sending another dollar to Ukraine. Garcia says he's just not sure whether it's even been effective. The problem is, uh, do you know if we're winning the war, in, you know, or if Ukraine is winning the war in Ukraine right now? Because I don't. I don't think most members of Congress know whether the Ukrainians are actually winning the war. Frederick Kagan is a scholar with the American Enterprise Institute, a conservative think tank. He recently traveled to Ukraine. There is a customary and normal rush every time any kind of military operation runs into difficulties to say it's a quagmire, it's a stalemate, and so forth. That is not the case here. Kagan was one of the architects of the 2007 surge offensive that helped turn the tide in the Iraq war at the time. In other words, he's part of the Republican Party that Rand Paul, Mike Braun, and Josh Hawley don't like to take advice from. But asked how critical U.S. aid is to Ukraine's chances of survival, he put it this way. American assistance is absolutely vital absolutely essential and irreplaceable. For the Mitch McConnell, Lindsey Graham, and Frederick Kagan wing of the party, the question of what's at stake for the world here could not be more consequential. The alternative to the U.S. leadership of the world as it is, is a Hobbesian world that is the war of all against all. We are much closer to that world than most people imagine. The Ukraine aid is still expected to pass, but how much more and for how much longer is a question that will linger long after Zelensky returns to Kyiv. Susan Davis, NPR News, The Capitol. You're listening to all things considered. This is 90.9 WBUR. Thanks for joining us. Coming up, a street pastor talks politics. 
The Dow closed down three-tenths of a percent today. S&P and Nasdaq also ended the session with losses. Each gave up about two-tenths of a percent. Amazon plans to hire nearly 5,000 seasonal employees in Massachusetts for the holiday season. It'll hire 250,000 seasonal workers nationwide. Positions include packing, shipping, and transportation. A hiring event will be held this Friday in Danvers. It's 519. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Vermont Tourism. Trip ideas and planning tools available at vermontvacation.com. Vermont, a little bit like a dream, very much open. And Johnson & Wales University, not just a number, a designer, an engineer, an accountant, a J-Woo wildcat. Discover more at jwu.edu. Listen to WBUR anywhere you venture this fall. Download or update the WBUR app now and tap to listen live. Game two for the Red Sox and Rangers down in Texas tonight. We'll see uh, Tanner Houck going up against the former Red Sox ace pitcher Nathan Navaldi for the Rangers. 8.05 start time. The forecast is coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Xfinity Internet with the Xfinity 10G network. So everyone at home can be online even at peak hours. Xfinity from Comcast. The future starts now. And Boston Lyric Opera presenting a startling new Madama Butterfly in an all-new production. Visit blo.org for more information. A beautiful late afternoon right now. Should have clear skies tonight. A sliver moon, kind of breezy, falling to about 57 degrees. Tomorrow, another lovely September day. Generally sunny, breezy, and dry, topping out in the mid-70s again. Thursday, sunshine dipping to about 72. Could get a bonus day of sunshine on Friday. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Data IQ, a platform for everyday AI, dedicated to helping teams move beyond the lab to build generative AI applications at enterprise scale. D-A-T-A-I-K-U.com. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. This is NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. Illinois just became the first state to completely eliminate cash bail after years of debate over its potential impact on the state's justice system. That law took effect on Monday. Essentially, this means that Illinois can no longer force people to put up money in order to get out of jail while waiting for their trial. Historically, studies show cash bail disproportionately impacts low-income communities and people of color who often can't put up large sums of money. Some states have eased rules surrounding cash bail, but Illinois became the first to ban it completely, ruling it was unconstitutional. Alec Karakatsanis says that's a step in the right direction. He's a former civil rights attorney and the founder of Civil Rights Corps. His group has been fighting cash bail across the country for years. I never forget the first time I went into a jail cell in Alabama as a young lawyer, and I met a woman who had been arrested because she owed some old tickets, and she had a cash amount that she had to pay in order to get released. And the amount was way more than she could ever afford. And she hadn't seen her one-year-old child and her four-year-old child in weeks. She didn't know where they were. They had just taken them away from her when they put chains on her and the police arrested her for her old tickets. And unless she could afford to pay cash, she was going to be stuck in jail indefinitely. And this is the problem when you base a decision about who's in a jail cell 
and who is free based on how much access they have to money. It distorts the entire conception of justice in our legal system. I mean, over the years when I've had conversations with opponents of cash bail about this policy, they often make an argument that's about public safety. Some argue that appending cash bail would put dangerous criminals on the streets, that it could contribute to a state of lawlessness. So, I mean... If someone's concerned about the impact of the Illinois law that was just enacted this week or other states or municipalities that might pursue either now or in the future similar legislation, what would you tell them? This is an area that has been widely studied by researchers across the country. We recently had a landmark trial where we put all of the evidence before the court in Los Angeles, California, where our organization was challenging the constitutionality of the cash bail system. And the court in Los Angeles issued a landmark decision that concluded that cash bail actually makes our society less safe. And the reason it does this is by jailing people just because they can't pay, it destabilizes their lives, interrupts their medical and mental health treatment, they lose their jobs, they lose their housing, they lose their family connections. All of these things actually make people more likely to get arrested in the future. You've talked a bit about how bail practices across the landscape are changing in cities and states across the country. Can you give us a couple of examples of other places that are looking at reforming bail? A couple of the most exciting places are places where we've worked a lot and filed lawsuits are Los Angeles and Houston. So in Houston, first, a few years ago, when we filed a challenge challenging the constitutionality of the misdemeanor cash bail system, about 20,000 human beings were detained every single year in Harris County, Texas alone, just because they couldn't pay small amounts of money in misdemeanor cases. And after we won our lawsuit there, almost 20,000 people are freed from jail every single year in Harris County, Texas. And researchers appointed by the federal court have been studying the outcome for years. And what they've learned is that not only have there been tens of thousands of people not jailed, but that crime goes down. I want to push on that a little bit. I'm a former political reporter, and I remember in the context of a number of political campaigns that were waged, particularly those during the early days of the pandemic, Many Republican challengers in particular made the point that releasing people without cash bail leads to higher crime levels, as we've seen this sort of violent crime increase in major U.S. cities during the pandemic. What do you say to that argument? There is absolutely no evidence that increased use of cash bail improves safety. It was never about public safety. The only use for cash bail recognized in American law is to encourage people to come back to court. It doesn't even serve that purpose, according to the research. People are much, much more likely to come back to court if you give them the support that they need. The reason that most people miss court is that they didn't know where to go. They weren't told the right date. They didn't have transportation. And so what a lot of cities are doing are introducing policies that are designed to actually meet those needs. And those cities are seeing dramatic increases in people coming back to court. That was Alec Karakatsanis, founder of the Civil Rights Corps. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. Now to a diplomatic quarrel that's erupted between Canada and India. It all started yesterday when Canada's Prime Minister Justin Trudeau claimed that intelligence services were pursuing credible allegations that linked India's government to the murder of a Sikh activist on Canadian soil. The Indian government has responded, calling the allegations absurd. NPR's international affairs correspondent Jackie Northam has more. 
Sikh demonstrators gathered outside the Indian consulate in Vancouver earlier this month, chanting slogans and calling Prime Minister Narendra Modi a terrorist. It's one of several similar demonstrations across Canada since the June killing of Hardeep Singh Nijar, a prominent Sikh leader. At Indian consulates, there were photos posted of Indian diplomats uh, with captions suggesting that they were killers, um, suggesting that they should be assassinated. Hindu temples in Canada have been vandalized. Nilesh Bose is a professor of modern South Asian history at the University of Victoria. He says some Sikh activists are advocating for an independent Khalistan state in the Punjab region, something the Indian government vehemently opposes. It sees the Khalistan movement as a violent organization responsible for, among other things, the bombing of an Air India jet in 1985 from Toronto to London, which killed more than 300 people. The Air India bombing, which is attributed to uh, members of the broader Khalistan movement, that itself has not been fully resolved in Canada and in India. The Indian government has complained to Ottawa about the Sikh activism. Trudeau says Canada believes in free speech. And that is the heart of the deepening breach between Canada and India. This morning, Trudeau defended his accusation that India ordered the killing of Nijar. We are not looking to provoke or escalate. We are simply laying out the facts as uh, we understand them. And What's unclear is why Trudeau chose to publicly blame India for the killing of a Canadian citizen without detailing the evidence, effectively placing India in the same category as Russia for assassinations in a foreign land. Indian media have been hitting back with their own questions, including this one from Why on TV. Mr. Trudeau, why has your country become a sanctuary for terrorists? Do you ever give a thought for victims of terrorism? New Delhi has dismissed the charges. In the northern city of Jammu, Indian demonstrators held their own protest, shouting Justin Trudeau, down, down. Justin Trudeau says Canada will work with other members of an intelligence-sharing alliance called Five Eyes, which includes the U.S., Australia, New Zealand and the U.K. But this spat with India comes at a time when those countries are trying to build a relationship with Prime Minister Modi to help contain China. Trudeau's bold accusations could impact those aspirations. Jackie Northam, NPR News. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Why are there more than 2,000 state-subsidized apartments sitting vacant in Massachusetts at a time when 180,000 people are looking for emergency shelter? Part one of our investigation coming up in about 20 minutes on WBUR. We should have clear skies tonight, a sliver moon kind of breezy falling to about 57 degrees. For tomorrow, generally sunny, breezy, should be dry again. Temperatures in the mid-70s could have another sunny day coming up on Thursday about 72 degrees. If you get up before sunrise tomorrow, look eastward. You should see Venus, the brightest planet, especially bright right now through early October. Mercury is also up early tomorrow, not as bright as Venus. Mercury is low on the horizon. Venus is up higher. This is 90.9 WBUR, 72 degrees in Boston at 530. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Milton Community Concerts, with Tony nominee Ron Rains and others in A Bit of Broadway Magic this Saturday at 7. More at MiltonCommunityConcerts.com. 
How will an ongoing strike against the country's largest automakers impact car buyers? It's going to drive down the supply of cars. So again, the dealerships are going to, you know, gouge people for more money. The United Auto Workers Union is threatening to strike at more plants if progress isn't made in negotiations. On the next Morning Edition from NPR News. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. Five freed Americans released by Iran in a prisoner swap are back home in the U.S. after being held for years. The brother of one of the former prisoners said the nightmare is over as families welcomed the group at a military base in Virginia today. The five Americans were released in exchange for five Iranians the U.S. was holding. The Biden administration says that those prisoners pose no threat to security. National Security Council spokesman John Kirby says despite the agreement, the U.S. will continue to sanction Iran. Last Friday, we designated some additional Iranian entities for the way they treat their protesters. And just yesterday, we designated more entities for wrongful detention. So we are still going to put sanctions on Iran as appropriate. We have boosted our military presence in, in the Gulf region. Uh, we're still working to, uh, to stymie uh, the Iranians beha- Iranian behavior uh, in the Gulf and beyond. The prisoner swap comes as Iran's leader is making a visit to the U.S. for the U.N. summit in New York. A Russian court has rejected an appeal by a Wall Street Journal reporter against his continued pretrial detention on spying charges. The ruling means Evan Gershkovich will remain in jail, as NPR's Charles Maines reports from Moscow. In a closed hearing in Moscow, the court upheld an earlier ruling that already extended Gershkovich's custody through the fall. The Wall Street Journal reporter was detained by Russian security agents while on a reporting assignment in Russia's Ural Mountains in March. He was later accused of trying to obtain state secrets, charged that if convicted, carries a sentence of up to 20 years in prison. The Kremlin has backed the espionage claim while providing no evidence. Gershkovich and the Journal vehemently reject the spying allegations, noting the American was an accredited journalist working in Russia. The U.S. government has also designated Gershkovich wrongfully detained and demanded his release. Charles Maines, NPR News, Moscow. Stocks slipped on Wall Street ahead of the Fed's decision tomorrow about interest rate hikes. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. The results are in from the most recent MCAS, Massachusetts School Standardized Tests, And as WBR's Max Larkin reports, they paint a picture of an uneven academic recovery that's still in progress. Tenth graders in Boston and Springfield already topped their pre-pandemic passing rates on the MCAS English test. At the same time, passing rates in 101 other public and charter high schools remain well below their 2019 levels. Amid those extremes, the story statewide is more modest, according to Education Commissioner Jeff Riley. The achievement slide caused by the pandemic appears to have halted and recovery is fully underway. All grades 3 to 8 either maintained or increased the percentage of students meeting or exceeding expectations from 2022. Riley has expressed hope that pandemic learning losses might be recovered by 2026. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Max Larkin. Service on the Fitchburg commuter rail line is back up today to the relief of some evening commuters. Last week's flooding severely damaged tracks near Lemonster Station and forced the line to shut down until today. The MBTA says workers installed a storm drainage system and rebuilt the embankment along the tracks. Heads up, Boston is getting a new professional women's soccer team. The National Women's Soccer League has awarded an expansion franchise to an all-female investment group in the city. Jennifer Epstein is controlling manager of Boston Unity Soccer Partners, which owns the rights to the new club. 
it's time, I think, to bring some of the greatest female athletes of our time who play within the National Women's Soccer League to our city of Boston. I believe in equity in sports, and I'm really interested in helping and raise the visibility around the excitement that is going on in the National Women's Soccer League. The team doesn't have a name yet. Its kickoff is slated for the 2026 season. The forecast is coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Graduate School of Psychoanalysis. Earn your doctorate in psychoanalysis. Better understand your clients, build your clinical skills, and advance your career in this psychoanalytic training program. Master's graduates from all disciplines welcome to apply. Now accepting applications for spring. Learn more at bgsp.edu. Such a nice late afternoon sunshine. Clear and cooler tonight in the upper 50s. Tomorrow and Thursday could be a repeat of today. Generally sunny skies, some fair weather clouds, a nice breeze with highs in the mid-70s. 71 degrees at 535. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Capital One with the Capital One Quicksilver card. Details at CapitalOne.com. What's in your wallet? Credit approval required. Capital One Bank, USA, NA. From Workday, an enterprise management cloud focused on providing organizations with a system to continuously plan for all what-if scenarios. Workday, the finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. And from the sustaining members of this NPR station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington. And I'm Ari Shapiro in Philadelphia specifically the neighborhood of Kensington, in a building that used to be a candy factory. There's molasses still inside of the walls of the building. If it rains crazy, you'll get it like seeping through. And I had to clean up molasses before off the floor. And this is, I found out through the owners because I was like, why do I got brown stuff? I thought somebody spilled like Coca-Cola on the floor. That's Carl Day. Father, husband, activist. Community organizer and hardcore Eagles fan. In post-industrial Philadelphia, this old factory is now home to art studios, furniture makers, and Pastor Day's ministry, culture-changing Christians. He wears a baseball cap that says Pastor of the Hood. In this echoey space with a backing track of car alarms and sirens, Pastor Day runs programs to help young men escape the traps that catch so many people in this neighborhood. Gun violence, poverty, addiction, incarceration— And he's aware that people are watching far beyond Pennsylvania. This is a swing state in a presidential campaign. Republican candidate Vivek Ramaswamy already showed up back in June. Just arriving in Kensington, pulling up on a street corner here. We're already seeing a lot of drug use on the streets. He came and he did a walk through Kensington and he wanted it to sound good. People have talked about Kensington, Philadelphia nationally in the heart of like the opioid crisis, violence, a little bit of everything that goes on. And this is where we've chosen to be because we really want to impact and help change lives here, better serve as many people as we can, very diverse community. During the last election cycle, Pastor Carl Day had tough words for Donald Trump and Joe Biden. Before the 2020 election, we spoke to Day and others who were not exactly excited about electing President Biden. They felt that his policy proposals didn't go far enough to address issues affecting people of color. And so as another election cycle kicks off, with likely the same two candidates for president, we wanted to check in with Day in person and hear his view from his neighborhood. Philadelphia has the highest poverty rate of any big city in America. So I asked him, what do people not understand about how Kensington and other struggling parts of this city got to be this way? 
people probably miss the history that got us here. You know, how industry left Philadelphia decades ago. Um, you know, how there's not a lot of industry that's coming into Philadelphia right now. I think that we see a lot of development, but we don't see a lot of industry come here. And again, I think that people are missing the lack of investment. People, we're right now in Philadelphia where the schools are legitimately falling apart. Like people don't have heat or air in schools. So if it's too hot, kids will get sent home because there's no air in the schools. Schools have asbestos in it right now. Like these are real issues in schools because that's how dated and old they are. And don't even begin to get me started on the curriculum and the life skills that people have lacked. So those things are things that lead to poverty. When the Biden administration has talked about programs that give money to communities, they've talked about equity, they've mm -hmm. talked about uh, racial justice. Do you think that's just talk or are you actually seeing that in this community? <sighs> I wouldn't say that it's just talk. I think that they have taken calculated efforts to connect with community-based organizations. I've gotten to be a part of that. Uh, I see that they've hired really good people who know the national landscape of violence, who've done good, great work in violence prevention sectors. I will say just to, to challenge that though, you know, I'm not sure that it's going out. Funds are actually going out as fast or as rapid as they need to. I think that, you know, there's a lot of red tape you know, that's always dealt with. And it's always dealt with at the level of, you know, when black lives are being lost, that, hey, you have to be able to fill out like an entire dissertation or 80-page application to be able to access funds. But again, like people had PPP loans and unemployment compensation, and all you had to do was fill out a one-pager and it was done. So I do think that, you know, things like that from an emergency perspective, because this should be looked at as a public health and public safety crisis. Mm -hmm. I'll also say that, you know, while I understand the support of places like Ukraine and the war and everything else, in the blink of an eye, a finger can be snapped and $25 billion going to Ukraine. But I don't think it has to be an either or, but it can be a both. I think a, a greater sense of urgency and, you know, just a rapid investment can be made. The last time we talked to you, 2020, <laughs> was an election year, and now campaigns are ramping up again. And when we talked to you in 2020, you were feeling pretty disillusioned. Here's part of what you said. man in America who... Uh, very, very entrenched with the black community, obviously, um, especially here in Philadelphia. I'll say that, you know, it definitely looks like pandering as usual. You know, let's do the polar opposite of Donald Trump, but still let's pander the black community. I mean, we. And now we're in another campaign season in 2023. So, Pastor Carl Day, are you feeling any differently now? I really feel like America really needs different voices. Obviously, we're not going to get that through this cycle. What I am afraid of is that we have so many old voices that represent so much of an old America where we're lacking the innovation that's needed. A lot of the same, same political playbooks are being ran. My fear is that people like Trump, who really, really represents a, a, a very, very bold, bigot demographic and also are aggressive enough to do things like January 6th. That's why I even phrased the question when I spoke to President Trump. You've coined the phrase, make America great again. Right. When has America been great for African-Americans in the ghetto of America? Are you aware of how tone deaf that comes off to African-American community? But at the same time, there's also a level of comfort for me, as far as I'm concerned. There's also a level of comfort on the side of the Democratic Party. I just feel like me as a person that's on the ground, I'm wondering how does it impact the everyday American? What happens when people say, you know what? I don't like Trump, but at the same time, Biden, I don't feel like anything changed. So I'm going to stay in the house this time. Do you hear a lot of people saying that? I hear people say it. I hear pe people are very agitated. That's why I said, I mean, people's conditions aren't changing right now. 
And then it's easy if we're like middle class intellectual, you know, or upper middle class, you know, intellectual black person saying, oh, y'all dumb, well, y'all don't get it, or why, why would you not vote? And then we try to break it down from, an, you know, uh, an academic level, an intellectual level, but another person whose reality hasn't changed in their 20-something or 30-something or 50-something year existence, and they keep hearing a lot of campaigning, they're like, convince me. If I could pin you down, it sounds like the last time we talked to you, you said, I do not like this Trump guy, but this Biden guy has not won me over either. Do I understand you correctly that you've now become so alienated by Donald Trump that you're willing to cast a vote to reelect Biden, even if you're not a huge fan? Is that is that where you're at? Yeah, I'm alienated from Trump. Definitely, most definitely. There's no way that I could justify a lot of his rhetoric. Anti-Semitic, his views and his thoughts on immigrants and there's no way that I would cast a vote for him. Not to say that I'd be anti-Republican, but there would be no way that I'd be able to support him, like, at all. So Biden would not be the candidate you would design from scratch, but if he's the one on the ballot... I'd have to do what I'd have to do. <laughs> but, but, yeah, he would definitely wouldn't be the candidate. I'd start from scratch, though. Pastor Carl Day, thank you so much for your time and, and for hosting us in your space here. Man, not a problem at all. The door's always open. The doors of the church is always open, as we've been saying for generations. Elsewhere in today's program, we visit the Philadelphia workshop where flags are exclusively woven by hand for U.S. presidents. Our thanks to the Public Media Content Conference, which brought us to the city of brotherly love. And our thanks to member station WHYY for helping Ari and our producer, Mark Rivers. Thank you for listening to your member station and to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is NPR News. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. The number of families in need of shelter in Massachusetts has almost doubled in the past year. Yet an investigation by WBUR and ProPublica finds more than 2,000 state-subsidized apartments are sitting empty. WBUR's Todd Wallach tells us how problems with the state's wait list for housing have kept people from moving into the homes. I'm walking in a park in downtown Worcester with Deb Libby, past a fountain spraying water. Libby moved here from a nearby town four years ago, in part to be closer to doctors who treat her for pancreatic cancer. She lives in a garage converted to an apartment. When Libby first moved in, she helped spruce it up. Before that, it was kind of um, orange and pink and weird colors. The bathroom was navy blue. You know, so I painted all the rooms, all the ceilings, patched all the walls. But a new owner bought the property and ordered Libby out. Libby isn't sure what she'll do. She earns only a little more than minimum wage working in the garden center at Lowe's. And she can only work limited hours because of her cancer and other health problems. I'm in desperate need of some place to live. And I can't afford the high price of rent in the area and really in any town. When the new owner launched eviction proceedings a year ago, Libby put her name on the wait list for state public housing. She's applied in Worcester and 30 other communities. So far, she's heard nothing from local housing authorities. It's like the system's broken. You know, why isn't somebody at least giving me an email or a response or a letter or something, but absolutely nothing? Libby is among the more than 180,000 people waiting for a state-funded public apartment. 
but records show nearly 2,300 units were empty at the end of July, most beyond the 60 days the state gives local housing agencies to find new tenants. Several empty apartments are in Agawam, a middle-class suburb of Springfield. Agawam Housing Authority Director Maureen Kerr shows me a family development called Brady Village. Outside are barbecue grills and children's bikes. And, well, there's a vacuum cleaner, which is a little odd, but, you know, whatever. Kerr says 10 of the 44 units here are vacant, some for more than two years. This one has been vacant for the longest time. So this has been vacant for 917 days. It's a long time. It's a very long time. After stepping inside the two-bedroom, Kerr's voice bounces off the bare walls and floors. She's frustrated no one's living here or in the other units. They're bright, they're clean, and they're empty. It's a problem all over Massachusetts. Costing the taxpayers money. It's not the way it's supposed to be. It's a failure. Care says one of the biggest reasons housing agencies can't find potential tenants is the state wait list. In the past, people who wanted housing applied separately to each housing agency they were interested in, and staffers often helped them complete the paperwork. But four years ago, Massachusetts launched a new system that lets people apply anywhere across the state online. Advocates hoped the new system would make it easier for people to find housing. Some housing officials say it's done the opposite. How do I like the centralized waiting lists? I think it's the most horrible, horrible, inefficient program. David Hedison is executive director of the Chelmsford Housing Authority. The whole sense of helping residents in your community is gone. Hedison says there are lots of reasons. The online form is longer and more complicated. People fill it out incorrectly. And there hasn't been a process to verify the information up front. So housing agencies routinely spend weeks asking for documents, only to find people don't qualify. When WBUR spoke to Hedison last spring, he noted, I have two family three-bedroom units. We've offered out to over 500 people from the centralized waiting lists and we cannot get someone eligible to move into those units. Hennison says another issue is that housing authorities all draw names from the same central database, so it's common for agencies to vet the same person at once, duplicating efforts. They even make competing offers and have to wait to see which place the person picks. If the person doesn't pick Chelmsford, then Hennison has to start over. You can't tell me it's our fault. We're using the system that state put in place. And there are people that need units, people that need to be housed, yesterday. The state's new Secretary of Housing, Ed Augustus, acknowledges the vacancies are a problem. I think it's unacceptable. Uh, I think that we need to do everything we can to make sure that every single one of our precious public housing units is filled and the amount of time between tenants is as short as is humanly possible. Augustus says his staff is trying to address the complaints. The state recently hired a firm to take over some of the screening that has long bedeviled local housing officials. Still, Augustus says he's not sure exactly when all the vacancies will be filled. Well, we certainly are hoping to see improvement soon. This is an iterative process. We'll continue to make changes as necessary. Those changes can't happen fast enough for people like Deb Libby, who are stuck on the wait list. She says she was surprised to hear about all the empty apartments across the state. Yeah, it makes me very frustrated. I have a hard time sleeping. I, I don't know what I'm going to do, and, and that's not good for my health. Libby says she wishes she could talk to the people in charge. Find me something. 
I mean, I'm one person. I don't have kids. I don't have a dog. I don't smoke. I don't care what floor I'm on. I mean, I'm pretty easy fit. Libby is running out of time. She has to leave her Worcester apartment by the end of the month. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Todd Wallach. Tomorrow on WBUR, another reason these subsidized apartments remain empty, local housing agencies can't keep up with the maintenance and renovations they need. You can find out how many apartments sit vacant in your community at WBUR.org. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Greener You, designing and implementing building energy systems for a fossil-free future. Learn more at greeneru.com. And the Freedom Trail Foundation. Experience over 250 years of history on Boston's iconic trail with its 16 historic sites and tours. Thefreedomtrail.org. Coming up in about 15 minutes on WBUR, United Auto Workers members picketing in Michigan and Ohio urged union leaders to hold firm on their biggest demands on pay hikes and compensation as their first ever strike against the Detroit Three automakers hit its fifth day. A beautiful evening leading to a clear and dry night tonight. Should be breezy tonight, a little bit cooler, temperatures in the upper 50s. Tomorrow may be a repeat of today, sunny skies, fair weather clouds, high temperatures about 74 degrees, 71 now in Boston at 552. WBUR supporters include H&H, the Handel and Haydn Society, with Handel's timeless tale of triumph over adversity, Israel and Egypt, October 6th and 8th, handelandhaydn.org. Yellowstone National Park's iconic bison herds. The buffalo, when they start following their migration pattern, their natural instinct is to come out of Yellowstone. They don't understand these borders that we've created for them, that the government's created for them. When they leave the park, they're not protected. So this year, more than 1,500 out-of-bounds bison were quarantined, hunted, or sent to slaughter. Learn more on Point tomorrow at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Indigenous communities have long understood that cultural heritage encompasses more than historic buildings and museum artifacts. It's also the knowledge of how to find food and how to survive or, you know, make art. Climate change caused by the burning of fossil fuels is shaping a growing conversation about how to protect all the aspects of cultural heritage. It's a conversation that one Northern California tribe knows well. That's where NPR's Chloe Veltman picks up the story on their efforts to protect traditions. The Oak Fire, which burned west of Yosemite National Park last summer, was devastating to the area's indigenous tribes, including the southern Sierra Miwok Nation. It really hit our community hard. That's Tara Fouch-Moore. She's a member of the Southern Sierra Miwoks Tribal Council. We lost 127 households. The tribe is headquartered in Mariposa, California, a small town in the Sierra Nevada foothills close to Yosemite. She says the Oak Fire destroyed much more than property. A lot of ancient human presence. She's talking about the fire's destruction of traditional plants used in native cooking, medicine and basket making. Elderberry, deer grass, soap root, cedar, willow and sedge. As well as more permanent physical structures, such as the many milling stations carved into the bedrock by ancestors. Fouchmore says the Miwok people have used these indentations in the rocks to grind traditional medicines and foods like acorns for thousands of years. And to think that something that has withstood the test of time for millennia can be destroyed by one 
fire sweeping through is a sign that something is changing and, and something devastating is happening. That something is human-driven climate change, and its impacts have been compounded by displacement. The Yosemite Valley used to be populated by indigenous tribes, including the southern Sierra Miwok. Cicely Muldoon is the superintendent of Yosemite National Park. In the middle of the 1800s, as Yosemite started to be quote-unquote discovered, by settlers. They began to push the indigenous tribes out. The federal government designated the area as a national park in 1890 to protect its natural treasures. But the cultural ones didn't fare so well. Muldoon says the few remaining indigenous homes were raised in 1969. That was the last permanent occupation by the first people of Yosemite still living in their ancestral homelands. With the loss of their homelands came the loss of their cultural heritage, including a long tradition of managing forest fires. Tara Fouchmore of the Southern Sierra Miwok explains. One of the first acts of the new state of California was to make indigenous burning illegal. The government outlawed this tribal practice of igniting small fires in 1850. The years of fire suppression that followed have made wildfires worse. Smokey the bear all over the place and now our forests are overgrown and in bad health and they're like oh wait maybe we should let the Indians do their thing. In recent years the National Park Service and the California Department of Forestry and Fire Protection have started to collaborate with indigenous communities to return traditional burning to the land. This clip from a Yosemite National Park video shows members of local tribes setting a prescribed burn. They rub pieces of wood together to generate sparks instead of using modern drip torches. Park fire managers look on. Greg Bratcher helps run the prescribed fire program for the state fire department. His agency worked with the Southern Sierra Miwok and other tribes on the cleanup effort after last year's Oak Fire. Tribal representatives help us identify and protect important cultural sites during a wildfire. And we work with them to ensure that these sites are not damaged by firefighting or other equipment. Bratcher says his agency is trying to build trust with tribal communities. But Tara Fouchmore says the removal of indigenous peoples from their lands makes it hard for traditions like cultural burning to thrive, because out of context, these practices lose their meaning. Yes, we can share our songs despite climate change. And yes, we can learn how to process acorn, but it needs to be whole and within the landscape to really truly understand. That's why, Fouchmore says, the Southern Sierra Miwok Nation has been working for years with the National Park Service to rebuild Wahoga, a village their ancestors once occupied in the Yosemite Valley. A YouTube video shows volunteers helping with this effort. We're building our umachas, which are the bark houses. We're building our roundhouse, and we're going to have that area to do our ceremonies and our cultural events. She says Wahoga will enable her people to tell their own stories. That's how you preserve cultural heritage, by making sure people are still living it. They expect to finish the project within the next few years. Chloe Veltman, NPR News, Mariposa, California. The House of Representatives is moving ahead with an impeachment inquiry into President Biden. In doing so, it has thrust some swing district Republicans like Nebraska's Don Bacon into a precarious position. I don't want to get in the spot where we're doing impeachments every president 
It's not what the founders want. It's not good for our country. Bacon didn't think an inquiry was necessary, but now that it's happening, he says he's on board, a political calculus that's playing out across the nation's swing districts. We get that view from four of them tomorrow on All Things Considered. You are listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Scribner, publisher of The Six by Lauren Grush, telling the story of America's first women astronauts, six women each making history going to orbit aboard NASA's space shuttle, available in bookstores and online. From Fisher Investments, Fisher Investments' team of specialists tailor portfolios to each client's long-term goals. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. From Workday, an enterprise management cloud focused on providing organizations with a system to continuously plan for all what-if scenarios, the finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. And from the sustaining members of this NPR station. This is 90.9 WBUR. Thanks for joining us this evening. Nathan Navaldi will be pitching against his old team tonight down in Houston as the Red Sox take on the Rangers for the second game of a three-game series. Tanner Houck will take the mound for Boston. The forecast, boring in a good way. Clear skies tonight, dipping to the upper 50s. Tomorrow, generally sunny, breezy in the mid-70s, and then Thursday, the same, sunny, some fair weather clouds around, temperatures in the mid-70s. We could even see the sunshine again on Friday. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Jamaica Plain Open Studios' 30th year this weekend, starting at 11 a.m. Exhibits across JP. Maps and info at jpopenstudios.com. I'm education reporter Carrie Young, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at wbur.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Thousands of auto workers remain on strike and the UAW leader says the number may soon increase. If the company does not respect the demands of our workers, then we will we will escalate action. The specter of additional strikes as soon as Friday coming up. It's Tuesday, September 19th, and this is All Things Considered. Good evening, I'm Lisa Mullins. At the United Nations, world leaders put a spotlight on Russia's war against Ukraine, a series of coups in Africa, and climate change in their first day of speeches. Thousands of migrants from North Africa have landed on the Italian island of Lampedusa. Italy has no clear path for what happens to them. And we visit the small workshop on a Philadelphia military base that exclusively manufactures the presidential and vice presidential flags. The tradition is more than 150 years old. It's 6.01. Live from NPR News in New York, I'm Jack Spear. Ukraine's president is calling on world leaders to stand up against Russia's aggression, accusing the Kremlin of weaponizing war, energy, and even nuclear power plants. This was his first in-person appearance at the U.N. since Russia's invasion, as we hear from NPR's Michelle Kellerman. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky is trying to rally the world to back his ideas on how this war should end, with Ukraine's sovereignty restored and with the aggressor punished. Look, for the first time in modern history, we have real chance 
to end the aggression on the terms of the nation which was attacked. Zelensky is calling for an international peace summit and says he will lay out his plans at a special Security Council meeting on Wednesday. President Biden told the U.N. General Assembly that no nation can be secure if, in his words, we allow Ukraine to be carved up by Russia. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, the United Nations. With the clock ticking down towards a possible government shutdown at the end of this month, House Speaker Kevin McCarthy is trying to convince GOP House colleagues to come together to pass a conservative bill to keep the government running. However, no matter what House Republicans come up with, it's likely to be rejected by the Senate, where both Democrats and most Republicans want to fund the government. A planned test vote was scrapped today. Congress faces a September 30th deadline to reach a deal. Otherwise, the U.S. could face widespread government shutdowns. Former President Trump says he will skip next week's second Republican presidential debate in California. Instead, he'll travel to Detroit to show his support for striking members of the United Auto Workers Union. Don Gagne. The UAW is currently on strike against three U.S. auto factories, one each at General Motors, Ford, and Stellantis, which is Chrysler's parent company. Trump will use the moment to argue that auto workers need him and his trade policies in the White House. But UAW officials are hardly rolling out the welcome mat. Even though union leaders have so far held off on endorsing President Biden, they do not appear to see Trump as an acceptable alternative. UAW President Sean Fain said in a statement, the union rejects an economy that, quote, enriches people like Donald Trump at the expense of workers. Don Gagne, NPR News. The interest rate setting Federal Reserve has begun a two-day meeting in Washington. With the early betting being, policymakers will opt to take no action on short-term rates. The economy has showed some signs of easing since the Fed's last meeting in July, while growth has largely held up despite a string of previous rate hikes. Slowing of inflation shows the Fed is moving closer to its goal, though rates still have further to fall. Stocks lost ground on Wall Street today. The Dow was down 106 points. The Nasdaq fell 32 points. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. For the first time since 1999, the Massachusetts Board of Education is updating the way it wants public schools to teach health and sexual education. WBUR's Max Larkin reports advocates say it's an important step toward filling in critical gaps in student knowledge. The framework covers all forms of health education, but it replaces a framework that barely discussed consent and homosexuality and didn't include menstruation or gender identity. The result has been under-informed young adults, according to Nina Brothers, a youth activist working with Planned Parenthood. Just last night, I co-led a workshop at my college on birth control basics because my fellow students and I have received many rudimentary questions as to how they can protect themselves. The new framework won't dictate local approaches. Sex education still isn't mandated under state law, and where it's offered, families can still opt out. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Max Larkin. The latest MCAS scores in the state show students' academic progress is still being hampered by the COVID-19 pandemic. The percentage of students in grades 3 to 8 meeting or exceeding expectations in the English language arts exam last spring rose just one point to 42 percent. 
That's 10 percentage points lower than in 2019. In math, 41% of students met or exceeded expectations. That's eight points lower than in 2019. Graduate workers at Northeastern University are heading to the polls today to decide if they'll form a union. Graduate workers who teach or do research will vote over the next three days, with votes to be tallied Friday. Workers say they want better pay. WBR has reached out to Northeastern for comment. Elected leaders are celebrating the installation of an electric vehicle charger at an affordable housing development in Dorchester. The pilot project launched today. It uses technology to send electric power back and forth to vehicles in the building. Gail Lattimore is head of the Codman Square Neighborhood Development Corporation. It operates the affordable housing units where the charger was installed. She says the technology will help lower heating and cooling costs for residents. The hope is that um, we can show that this bi-directional charger can help reduce the cost of energy to the property, can help feed energy into the grid. Lattimore says programs like this help reduce barriers to environmentally friendly technology for tenants in affordable housing. The Volpe National Transportation Center in Cambridge is now open. The center in Kendall Square is part of a $750 million project of MIT and the federal government. The new transportation center is part of a mixed-use development that will include an 800-seat conference room, research labs, retail shops, and affordable housing. In the forecast, nice-looking evening with clear skies overnight tonight. Should be breezy, a little bit cooler in the upper 50s. Tomorrow could be a repeat of today. Sunshine, some fair weather clouds around with high temperatures about 74 degrees. 71 in the Boston area at 607. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Melville Charitable Trust, committed to ensuring all people have a safe, stable, and affordable home that allows them to thrive. Information about ways to prevent and solve homelessness is at melvilletrust.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. The tiny Italian resort island of Lampedusa sits in the Mediterranean, about 120 miles off the coast of Tunisia. That puts it closer to North Africa than to Italy, so close that it's becoming a landing place for migrants who are desperate to enter Europe. Last week, more than 10,000 migrants made the incredibly dangerous journey to Lampedusa, creating yet another migration crisis for which Italy and, more broadly, Europe are not prepared. NPR's Ruth Sherlock is on the island tonight and joins us now in a note that we'll be describing the tragic circumstances that some of these migrants face. Ruth, you managed to get rare access to this port where many migrants arrive on illegal smugglers' boats. Tell us what you've been seeing. Well, you know, there was this scene of dozens of dilapidated boats. Some of them were actually half sunken in the water, and there was this debris of discarded life jackets and clothes and plastic water bottles. And this is the remnants of the scene from last week when thousands of migrants arrived here. And people who worked at the port told me these terrible stories of some of the things that these migrants had been through, um, being sometimes at sea for days. You know, they described one woman who gave birth while at sea and the baby had died. Um, and she'd clutched him and her, the baby in her arms for two days without cutting the umbilical cord. Others talked about a three-year-old arrived you know, traveling alone and it's presumed as parents died. So it just gives you an idea of how difficult and dangerous these journeys are at sea. Um, But once they arrive, it's not clear that everybody who arrives will be given asylum. Some may be returned to their home countries. 
The Italian Prime Minister Giorgia Maloney and the president of the EU Commission, Ursula von der Leyen, came to Lampedusa after this latest influx. And at one point, their convoy was stopped by residents who wanted to see them do more to deal with the migrant crisis. What's the atmosphere like there? You know, it's surprising there isn't this hostility that you might expect from residents who are seeing so many arrivals. In fact, last week, some residents came out and gave food and offered shelter. But there is a fear that if this continues, if migrants keep coming in these numbers, Lampedusa could be subsumed by the immigration problem. And that is something that the islanders really worry about. In fact, they blocked a shipment of tents last week because they don't want a permanent encampment here. I spoke with Giacomo Svedlazzo. He's a singer and artist who was the person who cornered Prime Minister Maloney when she came. He says, you know, Lampedusa cannot bear the weight of the world. And he's calling for more durable solutions, but the big problem is what those might be. What are some of the options that are being considered? Well, you know, Maloney's issued this crackdown. They're talking about um, more detention centres in Italy and returning more migrants who don't qualify for asylum. Uh, And she wants a naval blockade. That's something the EU hasn't sanctioned. They instead talk about a 10-point plan that includes stepping up border security and, you know, this kind of controversial funding of the authoritarian president of Tunisia to try to limit migration that's coming from there. Um, The EU says it stands alongside Italy, but the problem is lots of European countries in practice are not really very willing to accept more migrants. NPR's Ruth Sherlock on the island of Lampedusa. Ruth, thank you. Thanks so much. 13,000 auto workers are still on strike in Michigan, Missouri, and Ohio. No justice, no jeeps! No justice, no jeeps! The United Auto Workers is trying a new strategy, striking against the big three all at once. And now union president Sean Fain is turning things up a notch. If we don't make serious progress by noon on Friday, September 22nd, more locals will be called on to stand up and join the strike. As NPR's Andrea Shu reports, the question on everyone's minds is, which plants will be targeted next? When Sean Fain first announced that only three plants would go on strike first, there was some surprise, confusion, even disappointment among union members. I feel he should have hit at least six to ten major plants. That's Jerry Coleman, who works at the Stellantis Jeep plant in Toledo, Ohio. But even he's game to let this play out. After all, he is pleased that the UAW is hitting Ford, GM, and Stellantis all at once, something that's never been done before. All of this is a pretty engaging strategy, I think, that really is a sign of newfound militancy within the UAW. Eric Loomis wrote the book A History of America in Ten Strikes. He says this new strategy is all about keeping options open while ratcheting up pressure on companies. It does create a scenario in which the companies can't really prepare, right? Not knowing which factory is going to be next means that they don't know where in their supply chains this is going to hit. And there's also a practical consideration. The UAW has an $825 million strike fund. It's paying striking workers $500 a week, so having fewer out on the picket lines conserves resources. Now, the UAW has not ruled out an all-out strike, but nor has the union ruled out the possibility that some striking workers could be sent back to their jobs, which would also be smart, Loomis says. You know, nobody really wants to be on the picket line for months on end. You know, really long strikes do not 
generally win. Of course, the automakers have been deploying strategies of their own. Ford has provided a point-by-point -point takedown of Fain's talking points, including the claim that auto workers make poverty wages. Ford points out that their average union employee makes $112,000 a year in wages and benefits. If all the UAW demands were put in place, Ford CEO Jim Farley told CNBC that would rise to close to $300,000 a year. School teacher in the U.S. makes $66,000. Some from the military or firemen makes mid-50,000. This is four, five times, six times what they make. There's no way we can be sustainable as a company. That's Jim Farley's compensation last year, by the way, was $21 million. The automakers are also ramping up pressure on workers themselves. Ford has laid off 600 non-striking workers in what the company calls a ripple effect. Folks can't do their jobs if they don't get materials from a part of their plant that is shut down. Now, it's not clear how much progress has to be made before Friday to prevent an expansion of the strike. Labor experts like Sharon Block of Harvard Law School are watching these developments with interest. Those of us who have watched this kind of thing for a long time, it's just fascinating to see where it's going to go next. As with so many other things, Sean Fain is keeping everyone guessing. Andrea Hsu, NPR News. On Capitol Hill today, a group of House Democrats is making another attempt to restore the Voting Rights Act. Some of that landmark law's key protections against racial discrimination in elections have been dismantled by the U.S. Supreme Court over the past decade. But a new voting rights bill faces tough odds of becoming law. NPR's Hansi Lo Wong explains. Congress is divided, but Democratic Representative Terry Sewell of Alabama says she's not giving up just like the namesake of the bill she's reintroducing, John Lewis. Months before he died in 2020, the civil rights icon returned to the bridge in Selma where police bludgeoned him and other peaceful protesters on Bloody Sunday, 1965, galvanizing the push to pass the Voting Rights Act. Well, John Lewis, stricken with cancer, came out on that bridge and he said to us, We must keep the faith, keep our eyes on the prize. That prize is equal access to the ballot box which Sewell says has become harder to reach in many states over the past 10 years. What we see is more restrictive laws since 2013. I have the opinion of the court this morning in case 1296, Shelby County versus Holder. That's when Chief Justice John Roberts led the conservative majority of the U.S. Supreme Court in striking down what's known as the pre-clearance formula. It was used to determine which states and counties with a history of racial discrimination had to get approval from the Justice Department or a federal court before changing any election rules. Any racial discrimination in voting is too much. But our country has changed in the past 50 years. And the pre-clearance formula under the Voting Rights Act, the court ruled, was out of date. That's why a key part of Representative Sewell's bill proposes a new formula based on the number of voting rights violations by state or county in the past 25 years. It's not enough to be able to sue after the fact. We need a prophylactic measure by which we stop laws from coming into effect in jurisdictions where they've had a history of voter discrimination. Do you have any Republican co-sponsors for this bill? I do not. 
and in a Republican-controlled House, that means the chances of Sewell's voting rights bill becoming law this Congress are slim to none. Voting rights has really uh, it's become quite polarizing. Sarah Bender is a political science professor at George Washington University. Republicans really see reform of the Voting Rights Act as giving a boost or an opportunity to Democrats to improve turnout on their side. Still, even if Democrats were able to get this voting rights bill signed into law, Addison Francois, a professor at Georgetown Law, says it will likely have to face another political reality, the Supreme Court's conservative supermajority. It is a good policy to propose if you believe that the Supreme Court is going to look at this legislation in good faith. I am not, however, convinced that even this new precluence provision would be upheld by the Supreme Court. As for Representative Terry Sewell. Are you worried about the court? Of course, one worries about whether or not the court would actually decide in one's favor. But I have to tell you, I think all people were shocked and surprised that the Supreme Court did the right thing in the Milligan case. For that Alabama congressional redistricting case, the Supreme Court decided in June to uphold its past rulings on what's known as Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. But this month, Alabama asked the court to revisit the case. Sewell says she hopes the court won't and she'll continue to fight for the full protections of the Voting Rights Act. Anzila Wong, NPR News, Washington. listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Business news comes up at 6.30 here at 90.9 WBUR. This evening, one of the demands the striking United auto workers have is a four-day work week at full pay. We'll take a look at what a four-day work week means for the blue-collar industry. That's on Marketplace starting at 6.30. The Dow closed down three-tenths of a percent today. S&P and NASDAQ also ended the session with losses. Each gave up about two-tenths of a percent. Five more startups have been tapped to take part in Blue Swell's incubator program. The program focuses on ocean health and creating a sustainable ocean industry. The companies that have been selected include a marine carbon dioxide removal platform, a marine agriculture startup, and a biodegradable water filter company. Each company will get $50,000 in support from mentors to help develop their ideas. It's 620. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Goddard House Assisted Living in Brookline, embracing the aging experience for seniors in the Boston area. Learn more about their innovative programs at goddardhouse.org. I'm Susan Stamberg. When the time comes for a new car, consider donating your old one to us. We will turn it into your favorite programs. Here's how. Just go to WBUR.org. Tonight should be clear and coolish, falling to just below 60. Tomorrow should get back up to the mid-70s as sunshine returns. Thursday, as well, should be generally sunny with temperatures sticking to the mid-70s. This is WBUR. WBUR supporters include MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software for technical computing and model-based design, accelerating the pace of discovery in engineering and science, MathWorks.com, and Cambridge Science Festival, what happens when fashion designers and scientists work together. Find out on September 30th when Boston Fashion Week teams up with Cambridge Science Festival to bring you the future of fashion, workshops, demonstrations, and a breathtaking runway experience. CambridgeScienceFestival.org.
This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Russia's war against Ukraine. Coups? climate change. Those are just some of the bleak themes that world leaders are debating at the United Nations. This year, Ukraine's president, Volodymyr Zelensky, is attending, and he's warning that Russia must be held to account for using food and energy as weapons of war. And the goal of the present war against Ukraine is to turn our lands, our people, our lives, our resources into a weapon against you again, the international rules-based order. For more on Zelensky's speech and others, here's NPR's Michelle Kellerman reporting from the United Nations. UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres says the world is unhinged. There has been, in his words, a surge of conflicts, coups, and chaos. Guterres wants countries to come together and compromise to reform the UN, but some are not even abiding by their basic obligations under the UN Charter. Exhibit A. Russia's invasion of Ukraine. The war, in violation of the United Nations Charter and international law, has unleashed an exodus of horror. While many countries are worried that the war in Ukraine is taking attention away from other problems, Guterres says the conflict has serious implications for the rest of the world. President Biden, in his speech, echoed that. Like every nation in the world, the United States wants this war to end. No nation wants this war to end more than Ukraine. But Biden says Russia cannot be allowed to, in his words, brutalize Ukraine without paying a price, and the world can't just abandon its principles of sovereignty and independence. If you allow Ukraine to be carved up, is the independence of any nation secure? I'd respectfully suggest the answer is no. We have to stand up to this naked aggression today and deter other would-be aggressors tomorrow. Russian President Vladimir Putin is not attending the U.N. high-level week, so only Russia's ambassador was listening to Biden in the chambers, looking distracted on his phone when Biden spoke about Ukraine. Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky was there, wearing his trademark military-style green shirt. And when he took the podium, Zelensky blasted Russia for weaponizing food, energy, nuclear power plants, and even children who have been abducted by Russia. Those children in Russia are taught to hate Ukraine, and all ties with their families are broken. And this is clearly a genocide. When hatred is weaponized against one nation, it never stops there. Brazil's president lamented that there's too much talk about military aid to Ukraine and not enough about diplomacy. South Africa's president, Cyril Ramaphosa, says he met with Zelensky, who told him that Ukraine and Russia have made some progress in prisoner exchanges. As the international community, we must do everything within our means to enable meaningful dialogue, just as we should refrain from any actions that fuel conflict. But Zelensky wants more from leaders like that, and he wants them to back his ideas for how the war should end with Ukraine's territorial integrity intact. Look, for the first time in modern history, we have a real chance to end the aggression on the terms of the nation which was attacked. And the Ukrainian president says countries around the world should have an interest in that, if only to uphold international norms. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, the United Nations.
Next time you watch the president give a speech on TV, look carefully at the flag behind him, the one with the presidential seal. You know, an eagle clutches an olive branch in one claw and arrows in the other. Somewhere on that flag is a name, the name of the person who spent months hand-embroidering that work of art here in a room in Northeast Philadelphia. It's the world for me. <laughs> it's the world. Someone like Nancy Kim. It's make me so proud to be here, to work with for the especially big president flag. When she came to the U.S. from Cambodia 30 years ago, she didn't speak any English. There are 13 people doing this intricate work at the Defense Logistics Agency Troop Support Flag Room, almost all women and most of them immigrants. Their workshop is in a low building on a military base with jet planes parked at the entrance. Young Lamb is working on an eagle's tail feather, stitching tiny diagonal lines of white and gray thread. She learned to sew as a kid in Vietnam. How long does it take you to sew the one feather? It's about one and a half days. One and a half days for that one feather. To complete an entire flag can take six months. And it is extremely competitive to land a job here. People wait years for a position to open up when someone retires. This is the only team in the world that makes the presidential flags that go to the White House. Adam Wallstrom is the flag room supervisor. This is something that has been done this way for over 170 years here in Philadelphia. And this is a product that is incredibly stunning when seen in person. It has a vibrance and a life to it that you don't get with the machine technology. The artists wind the thread on an old spindle made of wrought iron and wood. Then they weave it into a long braid before they stitch it into the flag. And they don't only make presidential flags here. There are also hand-stitched flags for the vice president and each branch of the military. Wallstrom says these women think of themselves as 21st century Betsy Rosses. There's going to be a unique uh, style that comes from each individual artist. Each one of those million stitches, you're going to get a very unique and personalized piece out of it. Is million a real number? Yes. Upwards of a million stitches. I want my eagle to pop off the page. Dwenevue Sante Johnson has studied hand embroidery all over the world, England, France, South Korea, but she grew up here in the U.S. We are artists, but embroidery is my tool. And do you feel like you can express that artistic vision even when you're following a predetermined design? Let me put it to you this way. When you go to work every day, right, it's predetermined that you're probably going to wear a blazer, you're probably going to wear a shirt, and you're probably going to wear pants. I'm guessing, right? Good guess. If that's the case, do you still get to show who you are emotionally by what you choose to wear? Yeah, so tell me what the equivalent so is the of that. the same thing with this is if you actually look at this, you'll see that everyone actually has a different stitchway pattern, like our stitches is just like penmanship. It's nothing is related to the other person. For Duenevue Sante Johnson, this work is both a form of artistic expression and a way of connecting with her roots. I was born on Bannenberg Air Force Base, which is now Space Force Base. So it's all a circle because we actually made the first Space Force flag here. Huh, how did that feel right? to you, knowing that you were making the flag for? I felt like I was able to connect to my family to a language that I do, hmm. that, that's in my life, mm -hmm. that they could understand the value of an art practice. My family on both sides of the family have been in the military since the Civil War. Wow. So it was my way of giving back in the way that I could express myself with the same values.
Spending months to make a flag may feel like a long time, but the artisans here think about it on a different time scale. These pieces may be used for a lifetime, for more than a century even. With each stitch, they want to make sure the work will last. And thanks to member station WHYY and the Public Media Content Conference for supporting our reporting trip. You can hear more from Philly elsewhere on today's show. This is NPR News. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by the Lyric Stage with Assassins. Stephen Sondheim's musical masterpiece looks inside the shattered minds of presidential assassins through October 15th, lyricstage.com. And Bridgewater State University, hosting Nobel Peace Prize laureate Lech Walesa on campus October 3rd, bridgew.edu events.